This is Jocko Podcast number 321 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. So, it's cold, wet, dark. I've been awake for a few days. 19 years old. It's hell week. It's kind of crazy. But I'm having fun. A bunch of people have quit. And you you have no idea who's going to quit. My boat my boat crew leader quit. Who he was a prior quitter. So he had been already been to Buds, been to the fleet, realized he didn't want to be in the fleet. Gone, gone through the whole administrative rigmarole to get back to Buds, and he just quit. Uh, watching people quit is crazy. They quit so fast you can't keep track of it. It's just, it's just a mass exodus. And so, what happens is your boat crew. You're in a boat crew of six or seven guys, organized by height, because you need to be roughly the same height to carry a boat on your head or a log on your shoulder. If you got six or seven guys, you got to be around the same height. So you're organized by height. So as people quit, you get less and less boat crews. You keep lining up to adjust who's in your boat crew. But by by late Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning, things start to settle down, meaning most of the people that are going to quit have quit. And so now you see who's left. And it's, again, you have no idea who is going to quit. And you got all kinds of different people, tall, short, stocky, lean, smart, some not so smart, some introverts, some extroverts. There's no stereotype. There's no stereotype. There might be a public stereotype of what a SEAL is, but it doesn't exist in, actually in the SEAL teams. You have no idea who's going to make it. Only the big frogman in the sky knows who's going to be a frogman down here on Earth. In my boat crew, end up with some solid guys. One of them is a quiet fella from Kentucky, and he's holding strong. His name is Chris Gifford. Steady as a rock. Calm, stoic, solid. And we kept paddling. And we made it through Hell Week. And we both eventually got assigned to SEAL Team 1 and ended up having some pretty cool experiences together. And he ended up with a career as a SEAL, like me, and a ton of lessons learned along the way. And it's an honor to have him here with us tonight to talk about his experiences and share some of those lessons learned. Chris, (laughs) it's good to see you, man. You too. Thanks for coming by. Thank you so much. This is... uh, (laughs) A bit surreal because I'm a big fan of the show and just to be here with with you and, and Echo and and uh, talk about this stuff. This is uh, it's awesome. So thank you, thank you for having me. We're gonna get into buds because I don't remember a lot of buds, and so I'm hoping you can fill in some holes along the way. But before we get there, let's start out at the beginning. Let's start about where you came from. Yeah, so uh, I I grew up in Kentucky. In Lexington, which is you know kind of a college town, and um, it was a, a great place to grow up, and it, it's still a great place today. But when I was in high school, I wanted to leave. I was I was ready to leave. What What did your mom and dad do? So uh, my parents were divorced. Uh, my uh, mom worked. Uh, later on, she got remarried. 
they owned a body shop, so uh, they ran that. Um, and then my father was uh, in not too far away uh, in Louisville, and uh, he ran his own business. Uh, uh, he did uh, it was a kind of an answering service for people who uh, did uh, inspections, house inspections. So they would call him. He would set up the appointments and uh, and then just fax the appointments to them. Um, but who was more influential to me was probably my, my best friend's family. And uh, he was Mr. Hall, he was a great guy, um, and still is today, but uh, he was retired, or not retired, but he would, was in Vietnam uh, in the Army and just, you know, kind of an outdoors type person and uh, was real instrumental in helping, you know, me kind of get into that outdoor, you know, not staying inside, getting out and, and being uh, in, in nature more. Uh, big hunter, uh, had a lot of uh, guns and stuff, which made me more comfortable around it. And all this stuff made a big difference later on because, mm-hmm. yeah, being from Kentucky, uh, going to San Diego was, was a big change. <laughs> and uh, it was pretty evident early that it that I would have that. Now, if I remember right, you did, you were, weren't you an electrician or something? Yeah. So the, as I was wanting to go into the military, uh, when I was 14, my best friend and I went to Gulfport, Mississippi to visit his uh, uncle, who was a CB chief. And uh, we spent a week there with him and he was great. He took us to the base, kind of exposed us to all that. And that's when I was like, yeah, this, I think the Navy's a good way to get out of Kentucky. It's a good, <laughs> uh, you know, good environment. This is the type of culture I want to be in. And uh, my best friend and I at the time were also uh, dive qualified. So we had already been through like the paddy open water. Uh, he was, my friend was big into that. And so we kind of, that was our hobby. So we go down to Gulfport, Mississippi, and uh, he takes us around, and he said, you know, if you like scuba diving, you might want to look at the the SEAL teams. And we're like, well, what are the SEAL teams? So he had the All Hands magazine, which was about, you know, so this was mid-'80s, which is the only information that, that was out at the time. And uh, we looked through it, and it's like, yeah, this this sounds cool. This is, I think this would be good. So we tried to do as my friend and I tried to do as much research as we could, and uh, we kind of determined that, and you know, and now in the Navy you would call it a POA and M. You kind of yeah. set up these milestones on how to get to to a targeted goal, and I knew that at the time, in order to go to Buds and be a SEAL, you first had to go to an A school. Mm-hmm. So my thinking was, okay, if I got to do a trade, and they had a list of the uh, different tra- the different source ratings that you could be to uh, to go to buds, I figured if I could learn this early, then when I was in A school, I could work out more and mm-hmm. I could focus on going to buds. So my high school had a program to go to vocational school half of the day. So the first half you did your whatever required courses, math, English, whatever. And then the second half you left the campus, went to a vocational school and you studied a trade. And uh, I chose electricity just 
because um, a lot of my family were in construction. It was, uh, I would spend some summers working for my uncles as a plumber, and I knew I didn't want to do that. So electrical work was a lot easier. Well, that wasn't easier, but it was cleaner. Cleaner. I yeah, I wasn't you know, scooping shit. So uh, it was, um, so I, I chose yeah, electrical work and with the whole intent of just learning that. So when I got to A school, I didn't have to study as hard. I could just go to the gym every night. What was in the All Hands magazine? Uh you know, it just had just cool pictures. Well, it had the pictures, <laughs> like, but it, but it kind of outlined. You know, this is what you have to do to uh, to to go to budge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to have so many pull ups. So it's you know the times on your runs, your swims. Um, they talked about the source rating, so it was all about just kind of how mm-hmm. to get into it. Very little was mm-hmm. about you know, what they actually did. Did you read any books uh, like the? There's a couple books that predated you and I going in the military, going in the Navy. Did you read any of those? I didn't read any of them. No, no. I, I, when I was in high school, I was a mediocre student at best. I knew <laughs> to join the Navy, all I had to do was <laughs> graduate, was graduate with, with a three-point C. And that's all I did. Did you do any athletics? I, I did. I was a runner, and I ran distance. And that was because I was, you know, well, like I am now, but you know, very thin, long <laughs> legs, and uh, I think it was like 135 at the time. So, What's distance? So what kind f- of distances? So for track, uh, was two, the two mile, or uh, yeah, it was the two mile run, the one mile run, and the half mile, or 880. Uh, so my high school, it was mostly all sprinters, and there were very few distance runners. Uh, so it was it was good that. The coach kind of left us alone, and uh, that's that's all I did was just go in and run miles and miles every day, and uh, so that that was kind of my strong point. I did swim, but I didn't do the type of swimming mm-hmm. that I probably did to be competitive. Mm-hmm. You know, I think around my group of friends, I was probably a very good swimmer, and I think compared to the general population today you were a good swimmer amongst your nine friends in louisville yeah. kentucky <laughs> yeah exactly so uh but running running was was definitely my strong point so you get in the navy what when you show up to buds what what was your thoughts when you when you showed up to buds well i think by that time i felt pretty comfortable with with what how we were, or how, how buds went. And a lot of that was because my best friend, again, we both wanted to go in the teams together, but he was a year ahead of me. So he actually joined the Navy one year ahead. And so he was kind of communicating with me how things were going. And uh, when I was in A school, I actually was here in San Diego. So on the weekends, I would take the bus over to Coronado <laughs> meet him and and you know hang out with him and and kind of get some inside uh but before that did that, he make it he did he did oh, yeah dang. yeah what uh, team what team did he go he through? went to stvs oh. yeah and uh that was uh yeah he, he did one tour there and then he got out went into the police force and mm-hmm. had a had, still has a great career doing that so you had a good heads up as to what you were going to be facing when you got to buds i did and that year while he was gone i was so focused on what I needed to do. And I think one of the issues that I had, again, I was a good runner. 
a decent swimmer, but I'd never lifted weights before. And I didn't even know where to start or, or definitely I, I would have hurt myself. So <laughs> I went to the YMCA and I met uh, a, a former uh, Kentucky football star, Cisco Bryant, Coach Bryant, and just went in and said, look, and again, 135 pounds, <laughs> 16 years old. I said, I want to be a SEAL. And he's like, uh-huh. And uh, I said, you know, here's my strong points, but I don't have any weight training or anything. And he mentored me for that year. I would go, you know, every day that I could. And uh, he worked with me. And if anything, he kept me from getting hurt, which I think a lot of yeah. kids trying to go today – you know, they, they just push it too hard and get hurt before they even go. But, uh, but he was, uh, he was a good mentor to me and, uh, got me kind of that more comfortable with my body, my weight, and, uh, to be able to, to handle that. So I felt pretty good going to buds that, uh, and you were good on pull-ups, push-ups, dips yeah, and, and he's, rope climbs and all that. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's the one who, who kind of worked with me on that and put me on a good program to, uh, to, to be able to at least again, make, make the markers. And, you know, back then, not a lot of people knew about mm -hmm. buds. So really all you had to do was, you know, meet, meet the minimum. You weren't trying to outperform at that time. And I remember doing one of the, uh, tests, I think it was the test right before you class up, you know, they were like, all right, eight pull-ups and you know, they're trying to get everybody through. Once you did your eight, they're like, all right, hop down next. And they were just trying to. They just didn't even care. Yeah, you know, it was just trying. To, yeah, if you were ready to class up, and you met the test, then you were ready to go. They weren't. You weren't I, really competing. I got a confession to make. <laughs> you just made me think of this, <laughs> and, I, and I feel like a, a dick. So there was a guy. Remember, we had to do that class up test, mm -hmm. and you you count your buddies' reps. And my buddy, who I know exactly who it is, because he ended up making it on sit-ups. He didn't. He was shy. The number. I didn't know him at the time. And you know, I think you had to do seventy-five sit-ups or something like this. And he did like sixty-eight. Maybe he even did like seventy-two. Well, like for time or something. You have two minutes. Yeah. Okay. You have to do. It's run, swim, or it's actually swim, run, pull-ups. Sit-ups, push-ups, something like that. Gotcha. Minimum numbers, like you said, Chris said the the minimum for pull-ups was like eight. Yeah, but that was it. You do eight, okay, you're good. You're going in the class. Mm -hmm. This guy who 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 I end up, I know him. Like later on, I know him. He's a great guy. He's a good guy. He's a great team guy. Blah blah blah. He did like seventy shy of the sit-ups, and the instructor came over. Was like, what was his number? And I'm like, seventy-one. Fail. <laughs> Dude, I'm such an asshole. Buddy. I feel yes. bad, dude. You know, but at the time, you, I, and also at that time, it was like you didn't know who was making it. No. You didn't, and I don't think we had really had that attitude because I think you get into an attitude of the class like you got to help your friends out, like help your buddy. And we weren't there yet because we were just, hey, are we going to class up? And so I just, and I also have like a cold blooded streak of honesty, and it's hard for me to lie about shit. And I actually had one person tell me one time, you're incapable of lying. I'm like, probably pretty close. So the instructor asked me, I'm like, 71. They're like, fail. Cool. Sorry, bro. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that reminds me of when I first got to Bud. So I think when I got there, 
the class before is just classed up. So everyone that was waiting in that fourth phase or whatever, that pre-training phase, they had all left for the class. So there was, but there was a handful of people that were kind of hanging around and there was kind of a, there were a couple of people that kind of felt that stayed in that limbo, that purgatory for way too long. <laughs> and uh, whether, you know, they, they're like, oh, I'm not ready to class up. So, you know, maybe they wouldn't do as many of the pull-ups oh. just because you had orders there. It costs way too much to send you someplace else. So if you kind of, you know, you, you could stay in fourth phase for months, mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe even a year, but too, too long. Yeah. But your clock doesn't start until you class up. So there's really no reason to stay in fourth phase and because you're, you're, you're just yeah. never going to go anywhere. So, but, uh, but I show up and there's not a whole lot of people there and, uh, I get a room and uh, meet my, my roommate who ended up being my swim buddy, great guy. And, uh, it was like a Friday. It was the first day or first day I had just gotten all my uniforms and I, and they would have a schedule. So, you you're around the other the actual classes, but they would meet at morning for PT and they would do something. But then they'd say, "Okay, come back on the beach and we're just going to do uh, a surf passage mm-hmm. and just practice going in and out of the water." There's no time. There's no limit. Nobody's watching you. It's just just you just go out and do it. Or you know, we're going to do a run or go to the pool or something. So this day they were they were doing surf passage, and this was, I guess it was March. So the the waves were were pretty good there mm-hmm. and uh so being from kentucky didn't grow up around the ocean i wasn't you know surfer or anything i got my ass hammered you know we had those duck feet that yeah. weighed a ton <laughs> and you know I, I put them on and get out in the waves i get knocked down i get up i'm trying to swim out and i'm trying to swim over the waves and i'm just getting pushed pushed right back into the uh into the beach and this happened you know it was the whole time, so the two hours or whatever you're doing it. And I get back to the room that night, and I'm like, how can I be a SEAL if I can't even get through the surf zone? This is ridiculous. So I talked to my roommate who was, I think he was from California or from a, a coastal state. He's like, dude, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll go out this weekend. I'll, I'll teach you. And he did. He took me out and taught me how to dive under the water yeah. and kick like hell and just get through. And uh, that was kind of my first experience of, this is this is what a team does, you know. When somebody has an issue, a buddy who has a little bit of knowledge says, "Hey, you know, I, I can help you out." And, yeah, it's uh, a good thing you didn't get the introduction of the teams from me, <laughs> short stroking your sit-ups like I did to that dude. Yeah. Oh man! Uh, so you and I, are, you and I, are pro- pro- what are you? Six feet? Tall? Five eleven. Yeah, yeah. So I'm five eleven too. Because yeah. I remember we got we got linked up together pretty quick cause we're literally the same height. And, um, that means even in, I don't know if we, do we mess with boats and stuff in fourth phase? I don't think we did. If, if anything, it was just kind of an introductory thing. Uh-huh. Like here's, you know, here's how you put it on your head. Here's how we lift it up. But it was mostly, it was just kind of PT type stuff, physical, just general training. And then, then we roll into first phase. What'd you think of that? You know, I again, I was kind of a small guy, but I didn't require a lot of maintenance, which was nice. Yeah, you were I, low maintenance, bro. Because the big guys, <laughs> I remember being on the O course. This was right at the beginning. I don't know if you remember this, but we had a, a big guy. I know exactly yeah, who you're talking about. And he was awesome. I mean, and he was a good guy, Everyone too. loved him. 
Everyone loved him. He was a good runner. He was an awesome swimmer. I think he was a collegiate swimmer. Mm-hmm. And just, but he was, you know, what you would think a seal looked like. And we were on the O course. And, you know, we were all lined up and you, everyone just kind of goes. And it wasn't like a time thing. You, you just did the, yep. did the loop a couple of times just to practice, you know, your, your techniques. And I remember this guy got to like the third obstacle, which was the high wall. The high wall. So it's a, it's a wall that's probably 12 feet tall and there's a rope on it. Mm-hmm. And you climb the rope like Batman. You know, you hold the rope and you put your feet on the wall. You kind of walk up the wall. You, and then you get to the top, you flip the other side and you drop down. Mm-hmm. I, I, dude, I remember that. This is one of the few things I remember from yeah. Buds is this evolution right here and watching that guy. His forearms gave out. His forearms got out because he couldn't, he couldn't pull himself up the rope. And, you know, guys were kind of passing him through, and he spent, he spent the whole evolution on that wall. And we were, you know, the students that were done were over there cheering him on. The instructors were cheering him on, and they were like, get over the wall, get over the wall. And, uh, but he never made it over the wall, and they, they dropped him performance drop so oh that was a performance drop i i think so but now that yeah you know it might be what you remember it might have been a i don't know if it was a dor or if it was a performance drop. i don't either but again but that it was kind of another realization of you know you don't know who's going to make it through do you remember how many people we classed up with so the number that i remember and i i don't have any real evidence of this it was about 116 or some somewhere a little over 100 really that's what I remember. I remember but more than that. Really? But, huh? Yeah. Could be. Who knows? I don't. I don't remember much. Well, I remember losing a guy on the on the first PT of the first day, and we were on the grinder. Um, you, know, you know, they were hosing us down, and we got mm-hmm. wet a couple of times. And he turned his ankle, or at least indicated Allegedly. he did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they're like. You know, of course, yelling at him. I mean, it's the first day of Buds, and they were yelling at him, and he, you know, went over and and and, uh, and quit. But, yeah, yeah, I remember losing. And then we we lost people for performance. Uh, I think it was safety, you know, a couple of weeks before graduation when we were on the island. But, but you know, you mentioned at the opening about the, uh, about the boat crew leader. And I, I remember that like it was yesterday. We, it was, uh, we're getting ready to do, uh, Night r- rock portage, rock portage, yeah. And they bring everybody into the uh, in, into the classroom to give us the brief, and it was looking bad out mm-hmm. there. So this you know, it was probably April, May. You know, the winds were high, the waves were were going up, and we we were just kind of sitting in there. You can hear the wind howling outside. <laughs> and one of the instructors comes in. He's like, "Oh man, this this is going to be this going to be ugly." <laughs> and this was before they had guys wear helmets, right? Because yeah. it's easier now. <laughs> but they all they're like, you know, make sure you're wearing your hat, your hat. So if your head smashes against a rock, it'll keep your brains in and it'll soak up the blood. And they're just going on. So they come in, give the brief and it's, yeah, it's looking bad out blood there. Bath. And, yeah. They're just, they're just talking it up. They're like, all right, get to your boats. So we all run outside and we had people quit just bang, bang, mm-hmm. bang. And I remember you know, this is the way I remember it. A boat crew leader comes up. He goes, who's the next in charge? And it was one, one of the other guys. And he hands him his paddle, and he goes, I'm falling by the wayside. Yep, that's the exact <laughs> quote, bro. That's the exact quote. That's the exact quote that that dude said. And I remember you you guys were, 
were good I, friends. I think I was his roommate. Could, I'm almost positive be. I was his roommate. And you know, we were all at first. We're like, "Come on, man! You know, stay in there, stay in there." I, at first, I go, "I go what?" I, I, I didn't understand what he was doing. Like, I'm falling by the wayside. What does this mean? Like, are you picking up a different position on the boat? Are you gonna you're gonna paddle from over here? I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. <laughs> and so I think I literally said, "Like, what the fuck are you talking? What are you talking about? What are you trying to say?" Yeah, yeah. And and we were all kind of like, and then Jocko turns and like, "All right, see you later," and just walked off. <laughs> and we're all looking at it like. See you later. <laughs> we just walked off, and yep. and uh, and the evolution wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad, man. It wasn't <laughs> he, that bad. He got, he got sucked in. He freaking rang out. We also had another guy that was a stud that was like all the instructors loved him. He was kind of a jacked guy. He was from the Northeast, and I remember he quit, and it was like, dang. I mean, he was a stud. He was doing yeah. great at everything. It's just a stud. And you're, and you're just thinking, what is wrong with these people? Which is a really accusatory thing. It's not for everybody. The program's not for everybody. I understand that. It is very, here's the strange thing. You, you research about this thing, this job. You enlist in the Navy for six years of your life. You sign the dotted line for six years of your life. You train, you wake up early, you swim, you do all these things, and then first night of hell week, you just go, yeah, I'm, I, I was wrong, hey, I'm out. <laughs> like, that's a lot of investment for zero return on, return on that investment. Yeah. Um, hell week. <laughs> do, do you remember, did you have any hallucinations? Uh, yeah, when on the, on the long paddles, uh-huh. the uh, just kind of seeing stuff in the water, uh, the some lights and stuff, but nothing as bad as some others. Yeah. Some others. I saw a couple traffic lights out uh-huh. in the middle of the ocean, and I knew I was hallucinating. I was thinking, oh, there's a traffic light, but that's obviously not right because we're in the middle of the ocean. We all. I, one of the clearest memories I have is one of the guys in our boat crew whose nickname ended up being Chet in the teams. Who was my swim buddy. He was your swim buddy. He swore. He was swearing, saying swear words for like a half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, dude, this dude is coming up with some creative words right now. He was just swearing for like a half an hour. He was so mad about everything. And he was just dropping F-bombs, man. It was freaking hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, no, he was, and such a great guy again. I mean, he, he helped me in, in so many ways. Uh, another thing was, I was a good swimmer, but swimming in the open ocean was, was not my thing. You know, farm boy from Kentucky. <laughs> so, but he was good at guiding. And uh, he helped me a lot of times because when I was guiding, I was all over the place. <laughs> and there were a couple of times where, you know, the instructors were counting down, you know, 30, 29, oh. and we're just, you know, doing everything we can to, to, to make the time. And, uh, and uh, again, it was largely due to just my inability to, to swim, swim straight. But um, uh, we never failed anything. But, yeah, there was a couple of times that were close. Yeah, I failed to swim. My swim buddy, who obviously I'm not going to say his name, so we failed to swim. And it was a swim that a bunch of – Pairs failed. So we all lined up. Now, was this like a timed? Yep. It was a time okay. swim sometime in first phase. It wasn't like a conditioning where they're like, all right, all you fail. No, but a lot of us failed. Yeah. Like there was probably a current or something, whatever. 
So we fail, and this particular, who is in our boat crew, by the way, and you, you'll know who it is, but so we're standing in swim pairs, and they're calling us into the first phase office to explain why we failed. <laughs> and this guy, this guy, we walk in, and the instructors are like, you know, why'd you guys fail? And no shit, my swim buddy goes, willing can't guide. <laughs> and the funny thing was, I was actually, I was actually good at guiding, and I wasn't a horrible swimmer. And I just couldn't, I was in a state of shock and I was like, I guess not. And what we ended up doing as a class is we split up between, they gave us two good swimmers. So they're like, okay, you, you know, Willink, you suck. And they put me with another guy and they put the other guy with another guy. Well, I passed the next swim. He failed the next swim because he was slow. Yeah. But he blamed it on good old Willink over here. <laughs> that was the first, that's like the first uh in the first memory I have of somebody just not taking ownership and how totally jacked up it was. <laughs> and, and I was thinking, even the instructors, I could see the instructors. They, they didn't look like, oh, well, what's wrong with you, Willink? They looked at him like, oh, you're a, you're a dirtbag. I could feel that from them. So yeah. uh, oddly enough, w- w- did you have, was there anything that was hard for you in Buds? I wouldn't say like hard but but again i i didn't win anything no nope, i didn't lose did anything I. I was yeah. i was right in the middle uh if there was anything that came easier to me it was just the running just because i i uh-huh. just spent so many years running i had and i had the body for it yeah. uh that wasn't an issue i didn't really get i mean i got cold as as everyone did uh but but yeah i, I you know, for dive phase um no issues but I, I was comfortable in the water. I was already a scuba diver. You passed diver. pool comp first time. Yeah, dang, I failed pool comp. I do remember when uh, we had life saving, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, you know, I was a trained lifeguard, so I, I felt pretty comfortable at that. And I got one of the instructors who was of shorter stature, <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I, I should be able to handle this. I don't know if he had a weight belt on or just whatever, but man, he whooped my ass in the pool. And it was, I think it was right before they started grading us. And uh, I, it, it really kind of shook my confidence mm-hmm. a little bit. And, uh, but I, I ended up doing okay. But, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes you get that, you just get the, the bad draw and especially on pool comp, uh, you know, if you got a, somebody who's kind of Watching for, you know, it's like, did you do 71 sit-ups or, <laughs> or 75? Yeah, I, I failed pool comp, and I didn't even go past the first the first thing where they rip your mask off. Mm-hmm. He ripped my mask off, and he started just doing, he started going up, getting a breath, coming back down, knock, knocking my regulator out. Go up, get a breath, come yeah. back down, knock my regulator. So I didn't get a breath, and I was down there for 17 minutes. And I just sat there, like, kept putting it back in, kept going doing the procedures, and then, after 17 minutes, he literally, I sat there on my knees for 17 minutes and all he did was knock my regulator out, come back down, knock my regulator out, come back down and I kept putting it back and I'd get like half a breath, boom, it was gone again. So, and then after 17 minutes, he came back down, gave me, this, gave me the signal to come up and I come up and I wasn't even stressed. I was like, uh, so I come up and he goes, you failed, you didn't look comfortable on there. And I was like, hoo instructor. And... 
anyways, I ended up becoming friends with him later in the teams. And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember this guy. I was just fucking with you. And I was like, oh, great. You know, hey, my life. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you get messed with sometimes. That's the way it works. Yeah. I, yeah, I never was a BUDS instructor. I don't you know, know if that's part of the program or something, see how you handle failure. I don't know. But uh, it, uh yeah, it's it's kind of a <laughs> kind of a weird dynamic, and uh, but that school is you know, the way it's run is is phenomenal. And, I mean, it's a science, and they they do they do good work. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's a crazy thing. It's a crazy thing because you would not think that eighty percent of the people that show up to that that have enlisted in the military that have gone through screening tests that have trained that have told their friends and family, I'm gonna be a SEAL. You wouldn't think that 80% of those people in that category would quit. You, you wouldn't think it, and they do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's some crazy times, crazy times. All right, so we get done. San Clemente Island, well, how many guys did we lose at San Clemente Island? Not, not too many, but there were a couple of guys, one in particular that was in our boat crew oh, yeah. that got a safety violation. Yes, and that's the very guy that called me out as being the failure. So I think he was getting tracked the whole time. I do too. I think he was getting tracked because I think they just thought, this guy's not a team player and we don't want him in the teams. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's the very same guy. It makes sense. Uh, we also lost an officer out there. Yeah, and he was a really good guy. He was. He was. Were we in the same boat crew on the island? Because they moved people yeah. around. Uh, I'm not sure if we were. I don't but, think so. But yeah, know. he he was my officer, my platoon or yeah. element. He or wasn't mine, so we were yeah. different. Yeah. I had a different one. He was mine, and I remember before we went to the island, we uh, our kind of platoon all met at a pizza place together, and uh, you know he talked about what was coming up and uh and we even had our, our spouses there and stuff i mean it was it was something like you would do in in the teams mm -hmm. and we get out there and they got him on something it was so stupid it, it was a weapons test yeah not yeah, a like shooting an academic like it was an like academic an academic test. weapons test there there was something going on there he made somebody mad or something like that i think yeah because i i believe i talked to him like soon after that, and he kind of indicated that there was some past on the officer side. I'm not sure if he was from the academy or not, but he wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't from the academy. Yeah, there was something that something there that uh, that didn't work out, and it was unfortunate because yeah. I mean, what little time we were with him, I think he would made an awesome officer. That's the that's the hard part about having a certain level of subjectivity in the training, which there's le there is less of it now. Is there? I, yeah, there's less of that subjectivity. When we went through, it was, it was very subjective. And in many cases, that was the right thing because a team guy, instructors looking at a guy saying, I don't really want this guy in a platoon with me, which is the ultimate test. Now, there's a great trick that one of the Master Chiefs played on the instructors at one point. One of the master chiefs who you know, but um, he he was running buds, and he brought all the instructors into a room and was said, you know, hey, all right, who thinks you know we should we should make this, uh, you know, make sure it's as hard as it can be and set the standards. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah. And so they said, okay, well, what about the run times? What should we make it? And guys are chipping down the run times, chipping down the swim times, chipping down all these things, and then they get done with this new model of buds, 
and then he pulls out a stack of records and it's all the instructor's <laughs> records. And he and he says awesome. none of you would be in the teams. And he was right, you know, you can only be so hard. So the subjectivity, I think it's less now. I believe it's less now. But it had a benefit and it had some negatives because the benefit is if a guy really didn't belong, because look, you can be a tough guy. You can just be a knuckle dragger like, oh, if I'm, I'm not going to quit. That, that does happen. Guys just not going to quit. They're just tough, but they don't belong in the teams and they, could, they would get rid of that guy. Mm-hmm. But occasionally you get a guy like that officer who was a good guy, but I mean, we did, a, we, we spent a lot of time with him and he was a good guy and for whatever reason, rubbed somebody the wrong way yeah. and... That was that. Bye-bye. Yeah. Freaking rough. I hope he went on to do great things. I'm sure he did. <laughs> I'm sure he did. So you and I both get orders to SEAL Team 1. Yeah. Did you request Did you request West Coast? <laughs> no. So Really? <laughs> so that uh, you fill out your dream sheet, yeah. which I think is pretty worthless. But it was for you. It was so, my dream all day long. <laughs> so, I was like, Team 1, baby. It was literally my first choice. Well, it'd be interesting to see how they how they did the, you know, the division, but... So my best friend, who again I grew up with, yeah. both always planned. Did uh, you to put be in, in for SDV? I did. I wanted to go. You're to the, the only Coast. person that put in for well, SDV. <laughs> so on that, so I put. You had three choices. My first choice, I think I put like SEAL Team Eight or SEAL Team. You know, it, it yeah. was an East Coast team. But my third choice, I will go to SDVs on on the East Coast. Just because that's where I wanted to go, and I, I get SEAL Team One. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. I, yeah, I, I'm sure it was just you know needs of the Navy as I've I've learned throughout my career is that that you that will come first, and I'm sure they had numbers that they needed, and uh, I don't again I don't know how things got divided because we had almost half our class go to the East Coast. Yeah, it was kind of half and half our yeah. class. It was kind of half and half. Almost it almost was like half of us went to the East Coast, half of us went. Yeah, we to had the West guys Coast. go to SDVs. Were you married yet? I was. I got married right before Buds. So I, I uh, went home after A school uh-huh. on that leave, got married, and then went to Bud's. And then my wife finished college, uh-huh. and then she moved out to, uh, to San Diego after she finished. What did she think about coming to San Diego? Uh, in the beginning, it was – she didn't want to leave, leave you know, the East Coast because uh-huh. all, all of our family right. was there. And uh, – so she's like, all right, I'll, I'll go to California, but don't ever ask me to go out of the country. <laughs> and, uh, of course, 15 years later, we get orders to Germany, and she would have left without me because she wanted to go so bad. <laughs> so she had a total turnaround. Uh-huh. And, uh, but uh, we, we joke about this all the time because we're still married. We're, yeah, 31 years. Impressive. But, but, uh, but, yeah, yeah, it was – she came out to San Diego and – and being married in buds was kind of interesting because you know, a lot of people think, and I, I did, you know, before I found out that you know buds is kind of like boot camp where you're there mm-hmm. all the time, but it's not. You know, you you have a schedule, you show up for the schedule. When you're done for the day, you're done. And weekends, you're done. So we lived out in town. And where'd you guys live? Down in IB. Dang. And uh, yeah, I had a crappy apartment. She had a, a college friend that came out with her so to help with the rent, and. Uh, but our room was all guys who lived off base. So it stayed very clean because oh, we weren't living in it. You know, it. The beds were always made. Floors were always swept. Perfect. We might come in. And, uh, and actually, uh, Ty Woods was one of my roommates from, uh-huh. uh, from Benghazi. 
uh, who, who later died in Benghazi. And uh, but yeah, we because he had lived off base, so all the guys that had places off base got a room together, and uh, uh, so we didn't have to clean it as much. So you clean? I, I didn't leave our base. I don't think I left base and like even to this day. If I can stay at my house, I, I'll stay at my house. I don't want to go anywhere. Yeah. There's nowhere I want to go. There's no one that's like, hey, you want to go to a restaurant? Echo's like, hey, we're, we're, I'm having a fight to my house tonight. I'm like, cool. <laughs> Enjoy watching them. I'll be watching them too. I'm watching them by myself in my house. I, I, went out, I was like, okay, this is my barracks. I was in 602, whatever that bar- the barracks, 602. I'm in barracks. Cool. I stayed there. That's all I did was stay there. I don't think I left, I don't think I left base in first phase. I don't I think I, maybe, I, maybe, did I go to Subway or something possibly, but no, I was just in there like sharpening my knife, didn't have a car, didn't have a bike. Yeah. What are we going to do? I'm going to sharpen my knife, going to polish my boots, going to clean my room, going to hang out with my other loser roommates that are also <laughs> young and just not doing anything and we're just going to sit around and have fun. But yeah, that that idea of that people don't understand is that buds, yeah, if you want to, when training's over, you can go, you can go get drunk if you want to. Yep. It's almost a test in its own right of what you're going to do and how you're going to behave, and you'll get rolled up eventually, or that'll be that. Uh, so you end up getting orders to SEAL Team One. Mm-hmm. You, did you protest them, or are you just like, oh, it's, no, 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 hey, Roger that. That's where they want me to go, and and I mean, again, it wasn't like I was the only guy. Mm-hmm. I was with. 15, 16 of my best friends. So it's like, all right, well, we're going here. And, and did any, we all kind of went to team one, right? Did people go to other teams? Yeah. So other West Coast teams? Uh, a couple of guys went to five. Like uh-huh. my, uh, my, uh, oh, swim yeah, that's right. yep, he went to, five. went to five. A couple of guys went to, uh, STBs. I wasn't, I'm not sure what coast they were on, but, but yeah, we had, but they were kind of an anomaly. There was uh-huh. the, a big grouping. A crew one, of us went and, to and, one. Yeah. A crew of us went to one. That was what happened. Yeah. Uh, when when we showed up, we didn't even, you and I went to comm school before we even went through SQT, right? Yeah, so when we showed up at that time, the training department, which was at the team, they had, uh, of course, they had to train the platoons that were getting ready to go overseas. So they only did SQT so qualification mm-hmm. training at certain times uh, of the year and you had to wait till you got people because remember we had people from other class mm-hmm. you know, classes yep. that came after us yep. uh, that that uh, uh, went through that training together so during that time we all went to departments to work mm-hmm. and uh before i joined the navy i met a the only time i ever met a, a prior seal mm-hmm that gave me any decent information. Um, it was in Kentucky. I, I don't remember how I got connected to him. I think it was through my parents because he was, had did something with trucking. And uh, he met me for breakfast one morning. So you know, I'm 17, I think, at this time. And I'm just asking him all the, any question mm-hmm. that I had. And he just, you know, he was very direct, frank with me. He was, uh, you know, dispelled a lot of the myths like killing the puppy and, and the, uh, <laughs> literally drowned you. Yeah. 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 All, all the, all the stupid stuff. And he, he gave me like a couple of pieces of advice. First thing was for, um, for hell week, how to get through hell week. This was his, his thought was that what gets guys the most is they plan or they, they think too far ahead. Mm-hmm. They're not focused on the now. And 
So they'll, you know, you're getting ready to do a run or you know, getting ready to do rock portage, and you're thinking of what, what's going to happen next week and you know, on the swim that I'm not very good at. And they just it, that gets into this loop, mm-hmm. and you just end up quitting. He said, don't do that. Just think about what, what are you doing right now? You got to run. What do you have to do to prepare? Get your boots, get your you know, gear, and, and do Go the run. run. What's next? A, a, a swim? Okay, what do I need? I need my knife. I need my this. So just just stay on the now. And then when that gets too tough, then just take it, you know, I'm going to get to this next hour. And I'm, I'm just going to focus on what I'm doing, get through whatever it is right now, get over this obstacle, and then I can move to the next one. And and that's what I, I did that during Hell Week. You know, I was like, what am I doing right now? And Hell Week is great for that because you don't have to plan. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is show up with the right gear and, and do what they tell you to do. For me, Hell Week was a relief because I wasn't worried about failing anything because I was like, hey, I know, <laughs> I'm not quitting. And I wasn't, I had failed to swim, like I said, because we had issues. And my, I had failed one run because I tried to pace myself. And I'm not a fast runner, so I was like, oh, I, you know, I've passed whatever it was, three runs at this point, so I'm gonna pace myself on this one, and I failed. I barely failed, but I failed. So I was always sweating, failing stuff. And so when Hell Week was coming, I was like, cool, I can't fail anything, bring it. And I had fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I had fun because I knew that I wasn't gonna quit, and I was just having a good time. So the second piece of advice that it gave me came when was when you get to the team, you need to find the job that nobody wants, do it, do it well, and you'll always have work. So when we showed up at SIL Team 1, and we're all kind of going into the departments, I was like, I, I want to go into the comms department because nobody else wanted it because carrying the radio was heavy, and people had this kind of idea that comms was – just this mysterious magic thing. <laughs> when when it worked, it was PFM, you know, pure fucking magic. When it didn't, well, you know, the gods weren't aligned. You know, the, yeah, the moon wasn't aligned that day. And uh, and I knew that not to be true. And if I could, you know, do that job well, then I knew I would always have a job. And and back then, you know, if you weren't in a platoon, they had you in a department. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like, well, today it's, you know, everybody's a shooter, so you just keep rotating out. But back then there was no guarantee of that. And if they had too many people at the team, then if they didn't need you, then you you just sat in a department until something else came. So I wanted to, to go into comms. And uh, when we got to the team, there was a billet, two billets that opened up at the East Coast mm-hmm. Com School. And the way I remember it, at that time, you know, there was this, kind of my belief was, there was this real East Coast, West Coast rivalry thing. Mm-hmm. And none of the older guys at the team wanted to go to the school because that's the East Coast. I don't want to go to the East Coast. You know, we do it better here. And uh, and the, I think people in the training were like, you know, you can't teach me anything. And we were new guys, hadn't even, didn't even have our trident yet mm-hmm. or even through SQT. So we're like, we'll go. <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, 
they're like, okay, cool. And uh, yeah, and they sent us to uh, to comm school. I had stood quarter deck watch with a post platoon commander lieutenant who we you know so we this is back when we used to sleep on the quarter deck you know in that little bunk room so we were hanging out you know whatever we got pizza for dinner and i i mean this is literally within being of at the team for probably a week and he says you know and i'm like you know freaking i'm ready to rock and roll i think we're going to nom the whole nine yards and you know he he says, well, what, you know, what are your, what, what are your hopes? And he's a very cerebral guy. Anyways, very nice guy. He said, well, you know, what are you, what are you looking to do? I'm like, I'm looking, I want to go on ops. I want to be, I want to go out there. And he goes, hey, if you really want to go on operations, you need to become a, a comms guy because no one wants to do it. And yet every operation you want, there 100% has to be a comms guy there. You don't necessarily need a sniper. You don't necessarily need a point man. You don't necessarily need a machine gunner. A rigger. You don't necessarily need a rigger. You need a comms guy. And so if you want to go on every operation, you go be a comms guy. That morning, I woke up, really turned over the watch, and went right to the comms department and said, I want to be a com- I want to be a radio man. So, so there you go. That's how I ended up. And I remember there was pushback from the guy at the East Coast that said, what are you doing? Send me two new guys. This is an advanced course of instruction. You can't send new guys. They're going to get slaughtered out here. Yeah. And we just said, bring it. <laughs> so, so we show up. That was a freaking great course of instruction. Yeah, it was phenomenal. And you know, that was, again, the start of our career. And to have that, that skill and, and again, when, when we get back or got back from, from the course, I'm, I'm sure that we had some bit of arrogance about us. I know that might surprise you about, about Jocko. <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, we, we, we understood it. We, we had the skill down, and there was uh, nobody could touch us. And you'll probably remember the guy who taught comms in training cell at the time. He was not a fan. <laughs> he, hated, he hated me. Dude. He hated you. He hated me. You were quiet enough I to be quiet. like go under the radar. I was yeah. like, that's actually wrong. <laughs> you did. Nineteen-year-old Jocko was a handful, son. Because yeah. when, when we were in SQT and he was doing his comms oh, class, yeah. he yeah, he was just all over the place. <laughs> and I remember specifically the Zulu time. Do you remember that? What? what he was he was trying to explain. In developing a comms plan that all times are in Zulu and why it's in Zulu, but his terminology wasn't quite correct, <laughs> and he was saying that Zulu time is so many hours back or something, and you were like, "No, Zulu time is Zulu." Time. <laughs> and you could see I'm a new guy, could, bro, yeah, and you could yeah. see it in his face. He's getting kind of red. He's like. No, no, no. What what it means? Because it was something that had to do with daylight savings yeah, time. Yeah, daylight it savings time. Yeah, and it's it's like it's this off of Zulu, and you're like, no, Zulu time is Zulu time. <laughs> I used to run my life on Zulu time. The, so when we went to that course, this is the cool thing. So we show up at this course. We're not seals. We're I mean, we're new guys. We don't have our tridents yet. We jump in with a bunch of experienced East Coast guys and. Actually, there was another. There was a couple guys from Team Five out there that had a platoon or some platoon or two under their belts, and we just same thing. Where everyone's li- they're they're living in town, whatever. We're living in the barracks. Yep. Where all we're doing is studying. We have to learn Morse code. You and I are like t- 
talking to each other in Morse code, like freaking C-3PO and, and, <laughs> and R2-D2, right? Uh, studying this stuff, we're totally into it. We have no, like people think you graduate from SEAL training, you have some kind of tactics for the field. We didn't have any of that. We didn't know what we were doing. Or equipment. Or, or equipment, yeah, that's right, we didn't have anything. So the chief, at first he was pissed that we got sent out there, you're sending me these two knucklehead new guys, but then he realized we were freaking fired up and we wanted to be, like there's not too many SEALs that are like, hey, I wanna be a radio man. That's what we literally wanted to do. So once he realized that, he was kind of like, okay, but then he would kind of test us. And one of the tests he did, so the, that course, uh, the, the end of the course was a six or seven day in the field mm-hmm. FTX. And it was around a swamp. It was around an airfield that's a swamp. You're in the middle of a swamp. So this chief that was running the course, he, and he, he, he goes, Willink. <laughs> And he says, hey, if you're hardcore, you'll go in the field with nothing but a poncho and a poncho liner. And I was like, "What? did you say if I'm hardcore? Is that what you just said? Because trust me, I'm Jocko and I'm freaking hardcore. So you're saying a poncho and a poncho liner? That's what, okay, cool. Yes, I'm hardcore. I'm going to the field with a poncho and a poncho liner. What? By the way, key component here, poncho, poncho liner, no ground pad, mm-hmm. which, is, which is insane. Yeah. Did you have a ground pad? No. So, so you and I are idiots. We have no ground pad, we have no sleeping bag, we have no bivy sack. We go with a poncho and a poncho liner. And we are wearing wool. Not the smart wool you get today, but like like World War II wool. Yeah, kind of WWII wool. I think we even went to uh, one of those uh, G.I. Joe stores or whatever and was buying old wool yep. to wear. So... We go in the field when we start get when we drive when we're driving to the field, and now so it's January in Virginia, February maybe, probably yeah January February. January February we're driving to the field. On our drive, it starts raining. As we start pulling into the area of operations, it turns to sleet. As we're getting out of the vehicles, it turns to snow. Yeah, <laughs> it's freezing. <laughs> And I remember as we got out of the vehicle and we start, you know, our patrol into our first point, we get to uh, this little creek or, uh, you know, where it actually has water in it. And uh, Jocko and I look at each other and Jocko goes to me, he goes, you know, it only sucks the first time. Because, <laughs> yeah, you get wet. Once you're wet. You only get wet once. Yeah, you only get wet once. And uh, so we just drove right through it. And, yeah, it only sucked the first time. <laughs> that first time lasted seven days. It sucked <laughs> once for seven straight days. So we end up, so on that course, you had we had communications windows that we had to make with stations around the country. So we're setting up these old school antennas. Echo Charles, this is where you literally take out pieces of wire and you measure the wire to the frequency that you're gonna be communicating on and you hang these pieces of wire clandestinely in trees. And then you make these communications window. And we had like a communications window every two to four hours the entire time. And what happens is if you, you're getting graded the whole time and he comes out and checks your, you know, if you've got like what they call if you're out camping. So if you've got stuff strewn about and you got your sleeping bag out and everything's out of your rucksack, then he's gonna dock you points or he's gonna send you on E&E or something like this. 
And if you miss communications windows, then that's points against you. And how strong your comms is, that can be points against you or points for you. So what happens with all the other groups, literally every single other group, they missed some of their comm windows because it's every two to four hours. Mm. And why did they miss their comm windows? Because they would fall asleep. Why would they fall asleep? They fell asleep because they got in on a ground pad, got into a bivy sack in a freaking negative <laughs> zero degree uh, sleeping bag, and they just would fall asleep. Mm-hmm. We literally could not <laughs> sleep. We could not sleep. We were we would just stand, we were, I remember just sitting there looking at you, we're marching in place yeah. by a tree. At two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, we have every piece of clothing that we have on. We've got a poncho over us, and we're marching in place trying to stay warm because we're going to freeze to death, bro. We have, we're soaking wet. It was freaking ridiculous. No ground pad. We don't miss any calm windows. We, we set up great antennas because we had all this time to set them up because we weren't sleeping. Mm. And we make all of our calm windows. We make good communications on all those calm windows, and we end up as the number one pair. And the number one pair gets the early extract, meaning when everyone had to stay like the full day or the extra night or whatever, we get pulled out of the field early as the number one pair. Two freaking meatball new guys. <laughs> we get pulled out of the field early. And here's, a, here's an awesome thing. And I don't, know if, I don't know if you know this, but that chief called yeah. the master chief. Yeah, he called the master chief of our command and said, hey, you sent these two knuckleheads out there. They just graduated the number one pair in the class. They're freaking squared away. You should you should take care of these two guys. They're great seals. Which was we weren't even seals yet. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really cool. Obviously, I let it go to my head. Like, hey, no one can tell me anything about comms. I'm the freaking ultimate comms guy. Well, I mean, if you look at it, it wasn't like we were just the right place at the right time, and yeah, you know, we made a good decision. That was it. I mean, we knew we knew our shit. Yeah. And there was no one else at that team at least that could counter that yeah. so yeah I, I think we were you know somewhat arrogant but again that's what we set out to do we we wanted the hardest job we were going to do it well and uh, we never had a problem finding work yeah that was uh that was good times <sighs> so then we go into sqt yep yeah, so we go into sqt we when we get back which we had just been through freaking Hell Week. I think it might have been harder than Hell Week. Well, I came out worse. Oh, that's from right. That. You had significant trench foot, right? Yeah, yeah. To where I, for weeks, I was down, and I remember like sitting at home, having my feet in hot or you know, warm Epsom salt, and just the the pain of that feeling when it when it you know it comes back to your nerves and and still today I have nerve damage from that it's uh, when I retired you know you go through your mm-hmm. uh, your medical screening and yeah I still have uh, uh, part of uh, from that now I've gotten used to it because mm-hmm. it's been been so long but uh, yeah you had a legitimate case in 1991 mm-hmm. or 1992 yeah. of World War one trench foot yeah from spending a whatever seven days in the freezing cold with our feet were wet the entire time yeah. that was another thing we he told us to wear jungle boots he was like you, you wear because you wear all these these danners you know danners and these high speed <laughs> boots you go they're gonna get wet and you're you know you they're never gonna dry out and i was like roger that so what i wear jungle boots what do you wear jungle, jungle boots, boots yeah. and i actually carried that through my entire career my entire career i almost wore jungle boots 90 percent of the time unless my rule was if there's snow on the ground in insert during insert I'll wear something else. If there's not snow on the ground, 
I'm wearing jungle boots. And I did that my whole career. Because <laughs> your feet, because jungle boots, they dry out Echo Charles. So there's little, there's little drainage holes. Mm-hmm. So they dry out and it might take them a few hours, but if you're wearing a pair of thick insulated boots, they are not gonna dry out. And so I wore jungle boots almost my whole career. And finally they started making some modern boots that were comparable to yeah. jungle boots. Yeah. So now we go to SQT, mm-hmm. uh, which was awesome. We had great instructors in there, great instructors teaching us the, the fundamentals. We were kind of, we, we got, uh, it was almost like our generation of instructors, those guys were like one degree of separation from Vietnam. It, for the it, vast majority of our instructors. It was. I also think it was important <clears throat> that the training was still at the team mm-hmm. at the time. So you know, these were people that you were going to be in a platoon with. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was a lot, especially SEAL Team 1, we have you know, kind of that history of having that ownership and uh, uh, you know, meeting a certain standard. And they, they, really, they really pushed that. And I think that came out in the training that we got during that time. But yeah, they, these were guys that had been in for and had multiple, multiple tunes. I mean, yep. they just did it over and over. And uh, yeah, they had quality, quality training. It seems kind of funny now when I look back on it, but there was this thing that they would say at Team One, Team One, it's not just a number, it's an attitude. And they, in fact, our seniors oftentimes we're kind of joking when they said that because you know we also had the nickname was Stalag Team yeah. One because we had uniform inspections and haircut inspections and everything was like more militant. But I believed it. I mean, I was like, yeah, hey, it's not just a number, it's an attitude. Especially young Jocko, he was all about that. Like, we're number one. That means something. There's a reason. Team One. Of course. So I got a little crazy with that. <laughs> Uh, but the instructors, freaking outstanding, um, and and I still, I so much of what I learned, I learned then, and I fast forward a little bit, but I always say like seventy percent of what I learned in the teams I learned while we were instructors at training cell at SEAL Team One. Absolutely, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, so we go through that. We go through SQT. We had anything, any big high points of SQT? No, it was just again we were with all the guys from yeah, Buds so and some others, Buds class. and just quality, quality people. And um, now it was it was a good time. The training was good, and you know, back to the Stalock one. I mean, and I consider, I'm sure you do too. I mean, we grew up at Civil Team One, mm-hmm. and uh, just what we learned there set for the rest of the career, set your your work ethic, your you know the way you see things, and the the, the community as a whole. And uh, I'm I'm proud to have been at Team One, and from that period of time, it was yeah, it was phenomenal. Yeah, I think I remember this time where you you told me you were going on a trip, <laughs> and I think you were going on some kind of a trip, and Team Five was also going on a trip, and I remember you telling me you should have seen their pallets, like meaning their aircraft pallets. When you build, when you go on a big trip, you you load your your aircraft pallets with all your gear and there's a science to it and there's an art to it too like making it all squared away and making it weigh the right making it look good and making it look clean so the air force inspector will pass you and i remember you saying man you should have seen the team five pallets you were disgusted <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean if it looks like trash it probably flies like trash <laughs> um we get done with sqt 
and you, we roll into our first platoons. You, we're in sister platoons now. We had to be. Yep. Because they didn't want to stack the platoons with, with, with both of us. So they, and this was, a, I think, a great you know, strategic decision. They always had us, you and I, in different platoons. But, I mean, we talked every day. And mm-hmm. I remember you know, if I did a, a comp plan or something that worked or didn't work, we, we would get together and debrief about it. And, uh, but, yeah, they always kind of kept, uh, kept us separated. Uh, Were you the primary comm guy in your first platoon? No, I, there was a, a primary, but, you know, it was early on, like, just, just get it done. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of leeway. Right. Uh, but, uh, cause you know, he was, had other stuff to do, but, um, but it was pretty, pretty clear who was making <laughs> the, uh, the com plans and who was keeping the gear and, uh, but, uh, and then from then on, yeah, it was yeah. I, I was super lucky being they I was the primary comm guy yeah. in my first platoon. Pretty awesome. A lot of responsibility for a freaking meatball new guy. And that's also where I realized, hey, if you don't want to be told what to do, do it ahead of anyone being able to tell you what to do. So that was my goal. Our platoons had some unique personalities. Very, very unique. <laughs> Your platoon was pretty savage, dude. They uh it it was again an interesting time and it wasn't it wasn't like an even or a, like a bell curve. It was you're either a brand new guy or you had four or five platoons, yeah. and there there was maybe one, but there there was there was really no in between. And uh, luckily, it, I think there was five or six of us um, new guys, you mean. new guys yeah. that uh, there was at least one or two that had the spotlight. On them. <laughs> so it kept the spotlight off off the <laughs> off the others. Yeah, and and I was in my low, you know, low mode. That, you were like, "Hey, I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. I'm gonna do what I'm, I'm told." Just gonna make because it was a scary place in the '90s yeah. uh, at Team One as a new guy. It was there was much different. There was there was there was there was scenarios that could unfold really quickly if you were out of line as a yeah. new guy. And your platoon had definitely had some bruisers in it. Yeah. Yeah, some bruisers in it studs mm-hmm. freaking leg, legendary freaking 90s team guys just yeah. getting after it <laughs> my platoon was a little bit more uh, a little bit more mellow than that so I mean great guys but yeah. just a little bit of a different personality the personality of my first platoon was a little bit different than the personality of your first platoon uh, we end up going on deployment together mm-hmm. we go to Guam um my platoon got in so much trouble on our first trip that we didn't do, we never left Guam again after my first trip. Really? Yep. Hmm. We did one trip. We got to Guam, we did one trip, and we got in so much trouble that we never did a trip again. They pulled us off the schedule. Wow. Where you're not going there, you're not going there, you're not going there. I didn't remember that. Yeah. So that's why we, that's why we, <laughs> that's why I was sitting in Guam for five months. And how many trips did you go on? I think we did three. Yeah, so yeah. you probably did at least one or two of ours uh, that we were supposed we? to do. We got rotated out. We were a disaster. Um, the guys like to party, yeah. I must say. So uh, got done with that. I mean, what was your first platoon? Any any big leadership lessons learned? No, again, at the time, you just I just did what I was told. And you were, even though te- or technically with as being a calm guy, you know, I was I was well aware of what I needed to do, but you know, you're still kind of learning how the community works and you know, there's things in the, in the field that, that 
you know, you're still trying to develop. And, uh, and you know, you mentioned the guys. They, they were – it was a unique dynamic, but they, they were still solid people. And uh, oh, for they, sure. they were good mentors, and you know they they worked with you. If you, you know, if you were really, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm here to to do this. Then they were all about teaching you, and sometimes you know, not the carrot, but the <laughs> the uh, the stick. But but you, you know, they they did get you to where by the next platoon you were ready to to be a department head. You were ready to lead, yeah. and uh, and you knew tactically what you needed to do. The 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 underlying tone that I took away that I think was instilled in me the most at SEAL Team One was being professional. And that applied to like, hey, when you're in the field, you're a professional and that's what you need to do. You're squared away, you don't have your crap line all over the place, your gear's squared away, you don't have straps hanging off of everything. That, That was the deal. Time to shoot, you freaking, you shoot. You shoot the way you're supposed to shoot. You're not throwing rounds all over the place. When it's time to make comms, you make freaking comms. And I still have an eval that said made comms 100% of the time. <laughs> 100% of the time. There's no mat, there's no voodoo for, for freaking me and GIF. We nope. were making freaking comms. <laughs> That's it. We were making freaking comms. That's what was happening. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, yeah, but that, that high-level professionalism. Yeah, and when I was talking about your platoon had personalities, they definitely had awesome, crazy personalities but for sure professional and it's the same thing with the guys that were in, in my first platoon they were a little bit more light-hearted but they were professionals and you didn't want to mess up you wanted to do a good job you wanted to learn as much as you could you wanted to be a good you wanted to be known as a as a good operator that's what you wanted yep. to be known as and so that's what you did you know I, we'd always be all of us our whole new guy crew Saturday morning, be at the team. We'd be working out. We'd be fixing gear. We'd be hanging out. That I, I remember that until, until basically we went on that first deployment. That was what it was. I just remember always being at the team. Always being always. at the team. This is yeah. this is the way it was. Uh, after that first platoon, then I started volunteering for ARG platoons on the ships, and you continued doing the the what we called spec ops platoons, right. which was going to. Guam, basically, and then going on exercises from there. How was that next platoon? Uh, it was it was good, uh, you know, because again, now you're past the new guy stage, and now people are looking to you to, you know, to to, to start being a leader. And uh, we had we had good new guys, great new guys, and I had now I'm the department head. So if there was any strains on me before, now those are all gone. Uh, you know, we had, we had good officers and it was, it was good, but it was still back to Guam mm-hmm. and, uh, spec ops, um, you know, you, it was the nineties. So, mm-hmm. you know, you did, you did what they <laughs> asked you to do a lot of fid, but, uh, the dry years, internal defense. Yeah, yeah. The dry years. Then, then you did another platoon. You got back from that. Yep. Did a, a third one. And, um, again, now I'm starting to look at, okay, I, I'm, I'm ready to be LPO chief mm-hmm. I, I i've got the comms thing down i'm good with that now i need to to start moving up and the problem that we had at that time uh was the the way the navy worked <clears throat> is you had that source rating so you competed against that source rating to promote and my source rating was i seaman interior communications electrician so my job in the navy was supposed to be fixing phones and uh 
navigation equipment on ships, which I had no clue how to do. But because I was an electrician and I was, I understood how I could look at a schematic when I took the test, because that's what you take the test on. I could look at the schematic and go, oh yeah, well, this is, you know, this is a resistor. It's probably this. And, you know, Navy tests are all the same. There's two answers that are totally out. And then there's two that are pretty close and you just got to choose the right one. So I was good at taking the test and promoting all the way up to E6. But after that, now you're competing, you're still competing to, to make chief, but we're all competing against in different ratings. And I seaman just was not advancing because at the time, a lot of people that were doing that job were, would get out and go work for like AT&T mm-hmm. or, or something. And, but now, uh, cellular networks were coming in. So nobody was getting out. So the only people that were advancing were people who had been in 17, 18 years because you had to build up that Oof. time. But then all my, but all my friends who were in different ratings, like I think whole technician was mm-hmm. one, you know, they were making rank because everyone was getting out and working at the, uh, at the shipyards, but we were all doing the same job as a seal, but that's not what they were testing. Mm-hmm. Thankfully that, that changed and we have an SO rating and, uh, and that that's better, but at the time, and that that was really weighing on me on promotion because I was ready to advance, but it was the Navy system that was keeping me from from doing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so after the third platoon, and that was our first rotation date, and we knew that some people had to leave, and uh, and some some people would stay, and I think the the course was was going to stay. But I needed to find another way to kind of break out. And, and, and at the time, because we were deploying down to Southeast Asia, I looked at, okay, how can I be more of, a, um, of an asset to the team? And in my third platoon, who we had a, uh, our, our platoon chief who made master chief, and you know who I'm talking about, because I think you did a platoon with him too. Awesome guy, but he was a Thai speaker, mm-hmm. and we did a trip to uh, to Thailand. And I just remember he he kind of commanded everything, even though he wasn't the guy in charge, but he spoke the language. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, kind of going back to you know, you want you want to be a, an asset and to be a calm guy. You're always going to go because you have the radio. Well, if you're a linguist. That, that too. And this was the, the 90s. So at the time, uh, the administration, I think it was Bill Clinton administration, they were starting to normalize relations with Vietnam. And we didn't have any Vietnamese speakers at the team. I think we had one. He was actually from Vietnam. <laughs> but we had a ton of Thai speakers and a ton of others. So I was like, okay, here's an opportunity to, you know, kind of get a skill. I could I have they're wanting people to, to rotate, so I'm gonna to go to language school for a year. And I wanna stay on the West Coast, so I wanna take a, uh, an Asian language, I end up taking Vietnamese. But that was an opportunity to, to be able to come back. And, uh, and I eventually came back to one. But so that was a one-year school? One year, yeah. It was one of the worst <laughs> years of my career, for sure. And it, one, because the, the school, and, Defense Language Institute is a phenomenal school. I mean, there's there's no other like it. But you, that's all you do mm-hmm. is study. How many hours a day are you in class and how many hours a day do you have to study? So 
you know, the class was a regular eight hours. It's you know, from nine to, to whatever. And you take a, a break for lunch. But I, and this was one thing I wasn't prepared for, and I probably should have studied harder in high school, should have taken a language. But I would get up first thing in the morning, early, like around 4.35, and I would study for an hour and a half before, before school. Then I would drive in, go to class, take an extra, because I think lunch was an hour, yeah, it was like, a, like an hour for lunch, but they had a deal with, you could spend 30 minutes one-on-one with an instructor while they ate, so you just kind of discuss things. And then you know you eat for half an hour, then you start class again, finish the day, I would drive straight home, study for another two hours, eat dinner, study for another hour, and go to bed. And you did that for a year? I, well, I did it for about eight months. And it took about eight months to feel comfortable enough where I could take, you know, maybe I didn't study that extra hour after mm-hmm. dinner or something, but I mean, they, I mean, we were learning 50, 60 vocabulary words each day. And, and this isn't a romance language, you know, Vietnamese <laughs> is, you know, it's, you know. Completely and utterly foreign. It, yeah. And, and it's a, to- is it tone language? It's, it's tonal. So they have. Um, I remember you telling me about Yeah, they have six tones. So how you say a word. You can, you, be, I think you told me about rice. Like rice means rice, white, eat, and some other things depending. It was something like yeah. that. So the word I, I use is ma. That's when I tell people about tones. So you can say the word ma six different ways in Vietnamese. So it's ma, ma. Ma, 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 ma. Uh, I might have missed one. Anyway, but each of those words means something different. Totally different. About how you say it. So one <laughs> means a rice plant as it, it's coming up the water. Another means your cheek. Uh, another way means <laughs> your mother. Another way means a horse. Another way means a, a ghost or, or a crypt where you bury people. So if you say the, the phrase like de la ma, you know, if, if I'm pointing to a horse, obviously I'm not talking about my mother, but if you say it wrong and someone's just listening, it, it has a total different meaning. But you can say de la ma, de la ma, de la ma, and it means something different each time. So, yeah, it, it's just what it took hours of just listening to, to uh, you know, cassette tapes. That's what we had at the time. And, and some people are better at this naturally than others, Correct. I, I would hope so. I wasn't because the amount of hours to towards, you know, if you compared with the grades I was getting, I, I was way overworking myself. But but I learned so I learned how to study was a big one. Uh, they actually had somebody who was uh, getting their Ph.D. on on learning styles or something. And they came in and, and actually worked with us where we took a, like a survey mm-hmm. then she met with us and says okay you're this type of learning style and what it taught me is like i was wasting my time with with uh flashcards because that's what oh, everybody everyone was using flashcards dude this is like this is my my bread and butter is flashcards mm-hmm. so what she told me is you are better off just getting a blank notebook and just writing stuff down over and over kind of like on on the blackboard you know when you get punished yeah. Because the way I will not make fun of my comm school instructor. So <laughs> I will not make fun yeah. of my comm school instructor. So I would just listen to conversations and I would handwrite it down. I'd you know run it back, and that helped me, kind of on the listening side, you know, understand what I'm hearing and be able to uh, to work it. But it was uh, the other bad thing about 
you know, bad thing about DLI, but challenging thing was the leadership. And uh, I know you have a lot of different listeners. The Intel community, in my opinion, are not, you know, they're, they're not necessarily leaders. They're good at getting information, putting it in reports. I mean, that's their job. Mm-hmm. Leadership wasn't quite it. And the, uh, the people that ran the Navy side of DLI were all Intel people that were there for the, like their shore duty. Mm. And most of the students at DLI are all kids right out of high school because they, you know, this is yeah, like their, their job. job. Yep. And they score high on a test and they bring them in and say, Hey, uh, you know, you're going to, you're going to study Arabic. And they're like, okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they would do fine for a while. And if they failed, then they would kind of move them down to an easier language. And, uh, and if they failed that, then, you know, they, it was to the fleet or, or whatever. And, uh, but the leadership at the school was, was, was challenging because they didn't want to do any of the leadership part of mm. actually leading. mentoring and, and leading. <laughs> so, they guys like because I was a I made E six while I was there. They kind of pushed it to us like, okay, you're the LPO of the Asian division, and you know I'm I'm just struggling to study every day and learn my sixty vocabulary words so I can you know talk that day. And uh, now I got to deal with you know this person over here who you know went out and got drunk last night and you know was underaged or crashed their car or. It was just silly little mm-hmm. little things, and uh, and I'm thinking, you know, you're on shore duty, should, and that's something you should be doing. But um, but it, it fell to us. Luckily, we had some uh, good representation there, some officers and senior enlisted that were going through different languages, and uh, they they put a stop to a lot of that. And I'll, I'll tell you one story. The uh, one of the guys was he was later our, our training master chief. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he was there, and uh, I show up. So I'm, I'm just showing up to DLI, coming from Team One, and uh, got my my whites on. I, I think I was wearing, we were wearing whites at the time. You know, my try. You know, my whole business, and I, I walk in, and the uh, the lieutenant that was running the school. You know, they they kind of as you do your check in, she's like, well. Yeah, I know you're an E6, but uh, we have, uh, you know, we your class doesn't start for a couple of weeks, so we're, we'll just have you work in the master at arm shack or whatever uh, in, until your class starts. I'm like, oh, okay. So I go down there, and the person working in the shack was like an E4 who had never been in the real Navy, had been at this school the whole time, and was failing, so they – put them in this office to to be the master at arms or whatever. So I show up again, E6, or I was E5 at the time. And I walk in and they're like, "Well, yeah, we're 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 doing some painting of uh, some of the offices, so paint cans are over there, just grab a, you know, grab a can and a and a brush and and you can, you know, work painting the office for the next couple of days." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> so I walk out and I I see the uh, the master chief and again, he's like, oh, great, another team guy. And I talked to him and I'm like, hey, uh, what's the deal with, you know, they want me to paint an office for the next two weeks? He goes, no. <laughs> Walks into the lieutenant's office, shuts the door, comes back out for like five minutes later and says, you work for me for the next two weeks. <laughs> so that, 
had ended that. Uh, good stuff. Now, when you came back to Team One, now it's like 1997, 1996, 1997, I, something I like that. So. Yeah. And you go right into training cell. And that's where I've been now yes. for a year or something like so this. So kind of our core group all went to, to training. And so I was, I was gone for a year, come back, and I'm kind of, you know, kind of getting the layout of, uh, of what's going on. And uh, I see all you guys, and you're like, yeah, we're in training cell. We're, we're running things. I'm like, <laughs> all right. And uh, I, I'm like, you know, are there any platoons? Straight Team One Mafia yeah. at this point, man. We had our hands in everything, bro. And, and I'm, looking at the, I'm looking at the platoons. I'm like, hmm, I mean, all my friends are, are in training cell. And so, and then I think you and I talk, because at the time, I think you had maybe started the, uh, the, the, comms program yeah i kind of started yes i had started but i hadn't run like what i what the vision was yes which but was you had vision run, of course oh, i had yeah. a vision boy <laughs> so <laughs> i think we talked about it we're like look we we could do something something big here and uh i'm like i i'm all in i'm all in so yeah i came back uh the i think the leadership had just turned over in training mm-hmm. and we had good people in there the guy from DLI was there, and uh, so I, I already knew he was awesome. So I'm like, "Yep, let's let's do this." So we end up teaching a bunch of different stuff, but one of the one of the coolest things that we did was we launched a comm school for the communicators at SEAL Team One, and it was a str- It was kind of hard to get the. I don't know if you remember this. The the hardest thing about getting it actually approved was the amount of batteries it was going to take the 5590 batteries that cost $64 each or something like this, and we're gonna have to outfit 20 guys or whatever it was, and our initial answer was no. No, you, you, you can't have money for those batteries. Use the rechargeable batteries, which were the BA, what were they called? BA 55 something else. Yeah, yeah. And we were like, that's that, that's unrealistic. We'd never carry those, but they only last about. And we ended up fighting, and our commanding officer, like, we pitched it to the commanding officer. He's like, all right, approved. And we got whatever it was, $4,000 to buy yeah. enough batteries to run this exercise. And we set up a freaking crazy FTX out in the field. And, man, we weighed the guys. I remember we started off by weighing the guys to see how much equipment they had. And, and they averaged, average was what in their gear and equipment? 120 pounds? At least, yeah. So the guys are rolling out on a seven-day re- two-man reconnaissance. And we've got, how, how many teams do you think we had on that first one? Six or seven? Yeah, that, so- that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. It was probably, actually it was probably six because it was probably two guys per six platoons at team yeah. one. And so there you go. Yeah. Here we go, rock and roll. And we took those guys out and it was a ball buster. Yeah, to, to put it lightly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm sure some of the guys probably have better terms for it. Oh, dude, it, that was, actually. it was harsh. So we did it up in the Southern California mountains. We had a really great target to observe. It's a military target. There was military activity at the target. And that was the key because I think what, you know when we went through our course, all we had I think we were counting cars on a road mm-hmm. or or watching something, and a lot of the training was you know, you're going to 
watch this missile site and it was a piece of PVC pipe yeah. and maybe somebody come out once a day and do, but we had an active target where stuff was going on all the time. And it was important because you knew based on the reports who was actually doing the work yeah. because there was stuff to report. Yeah, it was good. And we set up comm shots all over the country. And so then the, the, the highlight of this first course that we ran though was these there was one three-man pair mm-hmm. for whatever reason. That always happens in the teams. You end up in a three-man pair for some reason. So there's one three-man pair, and we're monitoring everything. We're not sleeping at all. No. We're, we're just not sleeping for seven days. We're like, we're just so freaking fired up <laughs> to, to be running this thing. And one of the that three-man pair misses a calm window. And... So we immediately roll out there. We're like freaking Starsky and Hutch. Like, we got a missed calm window on freaking <laughs> Delta Four. Let's go. So we roll out there and and we get to their position. And bro, we this was we just knew too much. And I remember we said like, hey, you know, why weren't you up on that calm window? And and they said something along the lines of like, well, we tried, but the other station wasn't up. And you and I looked at each other like, because we were monitoring the station, the, what, the frequency they were supposed to be calling on. We were listening to it. Yeah. And we were close enough. Yeah, yeah. We would have heard it regardless. Yeah. Like we 100% would have heard it. We didn't hear anything. So we roll out there, hey, why, why'd you guys miss that comment? And they go, well, we tried. Lie. But the other <laughs> group wasn't up. Lie, because we got, we got comms with the other group. So I remember you and I looked at each other. We, we just, I don't know if you said Isaac, we're like, let's separate them. Or we like well, took a step away, like, let's separate them. So we separate them and we're like freaking, uh, who's sure? We're like freaking two Sherlock Holmes up in this piece right here. And so I remember I go, and, and I said, what kind of antennas do you guys set up? And he's like, oh, we had a long wire. And you're asking, I, we come back to him, what kind of, he says, he says uh, inverted dipole. Oh, this guy says long wire. They're liars. <laughs> so we come back over and we're like, all right, um, you guys didn't tell us the truth. And there's got to be consequences to that. <laughs> so we start making these guys walk. And like up hills, up the big hills with all their gear and equipment. And they start walking. And then when they would get to those points, we'd be like, call us when you get there. But we'd be waiting for them. They'd and they still had to make their calm windows along the, along way. the way. That's right. That's right. And the good, the cool thing about this, they, they shouldn't have lied and everything, but they were good guys. Yeah, especially that one character. Yeah. The one character's like, I'm sorry, man. We shouldn't have lied. It's my fault. We shouldn't have lied. And we're like, yeah, cool. But that's four <laughs> minutes too late, bro. <laughs> and he was a new guy at the time, too. Yeah. So these guys were just hating life. They they knew they'd screwed up. But I remember, so we so we so they'd get to a spot that we took, like on the top of a mountain, and we'd be waiting for them. And they'd get up there and be like, get out your map. And they, you just have a look in their eyes because get out their map. Get out your map means we're going to assign you another spot. So we'd put, pick, point to another top of another mountain, and they'd be like Roger. So we did that to him a few times. Finally, we did one, and we opened up the back of the truck, put the tailgate down, and I remember going, um, "Hey, you, you know, go back." It was actually go back to the mountaintop you just came from, and you could hear like a little bit of a. And I said, or you guys can just put your gear in the back of the truck and call it quits. And I remember that one character, 
Good guy, Zach. He's like, no, no, sir. No. Oh, he didn't call me sir, but he's like, no, Jocko, it's all right. We're going. We're, we'll start walking. Good to go. Fill up your water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fill up your water bottles. Um, what'd you tell me that guy told you? That was like the hardest training he ever did. <clears throat> well, he, yeah. I, I <laughs> talked to him a couple of years ago. Good job. Great guy. And uh, he's like, yeah, man, I was still one of the hardest training. You, you, you should actually have him on your show. I think he's still in. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, – from his perspective, I'm, I'm sure he would think differently, but but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was good. Uh, awesome stuff. Great training for those calm guys, really. And that was, you know, you and I were obsessed. We realized the importance of comms. We over-indexed the importance of comms to you and me. It was like, hey, if you can't get comms, you can't get extracted, you can't get fire support, which is true. Yeah. It's true. But we were crazy about it. Kind of crazy. Yeah. And... <laughs> Passionate, maybe that's a better term. Passionate. Yeah, I'm sure some people might call it passion. Some people call it psychotic. Uh, but that's that's how it rolls. Um, the truth hurts, but lies hurt more. That was the lesson learned there. So then you ended up putting for a commissioning program, right? So when so this was about the the time that you left, and uh, I was again I've been E6 for several years now, and I was just I was reading the tea leaves, you know, I, I, I would take the chief's exam on a, on a job I, I didn't do, didn't know how to do. And, uh, so I thought, okay, this, this isn't, if I got to wait another five, six years to be chief when all my friends are, are making chief, then, then I, I need to find another job or another career. And, you know, this is the time. Cause I was at t- about 10 years mm-hmm. at that time. So you're actually waiting, getting out. You're thinking about getting out? Yeah, I was it's like, not, yeah. This, this is what, 99? So there's no wars going on. Yeah. You've so, kind of done what you could do. Yeah, yeah. There, there was, you know, if in hindsight, if I knew we were going <laughs> to go to war next year, I was, I, I would have not even thought about it. But, but yeah, at the time I was like, okay, at 10 years, if I'm, if I'm not going to stay, then I need to go and, and, and do something else. What did you think you would have done? Uh, I mean, I had an electrical background, mm. I, you know, I was, I uh, I could get that job at AT and T you were talking about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Laying you know, wire well, at this time, you know, I, I spoke Vietnamese. I mean, oh, I, right. I had a I, I I knew I could find a job somewhere. I sure. could do something, but uh, or maybe go back to school. And when we had the GI Bill, so I, I had I had options. So I go in to talk to uh, to the mass chief, same same guy from DLI, and because he's now the senior enlisted for training and. Uh, and I talked to him, I go, look, you know, this is, this is my situation. You know, I, I love this job, but I, I can't sit as an E6 for another five years while everyone else is promoting and, and just do the same thing. So he's like, you know, maybe you should be an officer. I'm like, fuck no. <laughs> and you know, I would go off on this tirade about, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm here to be yeah. a master. That's, I want to do that job. You know, I, I enlisted because I work I, for a living. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, no way I was going to be an officer. And uh, he he says after I rant for a while, he goes, "Look," and I and you know this guy's very well spoken, yeah. and I I can't say it like he did because I just don't remember. It. But in essence, it was he said, "Giff, everyone here has something to give to this community. You just need to find the right medium to do it." And, you know, if, if the enlisted route isn't working because of outside of, of, you know, your, what you can do, I mean, it's a system, you're not going to change that. So maybe you just need to find 
a different way and maybe be an officer is is the right way to go so i said okay i'll i'll, I'll look at it I'll at least consider it <clears throat> and uh you had just i think didn't you just get yeah, picked up I, le- I got picked up in i left for OCS in 1998. Okay. And I had applied in 1997 and didn't get it. Right. And, and so I had to try again. Yeah, and I think he, he, had, he had mentioned that. So I looked at your program, but there was, I think I was You're too, too old. old. You were too old because you were the same age and I didn't get it my first year. And I was like, well, I had some other career choices I was looking at, Not they were in the Navy. Mm-hmm. But I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll go to a different command, but I'll take one more crack at this to see if I can get it. And I got it. The second time, but it was, yeah, you would have been too old to get that program. I was too old. So they had another a, kind of a legacy program, the enlisted commissioning program, that they were kind of phasing out because they were going over to the Seaman Admiral. And, uh, but it, the way you read it, I, I actually could apply for that. I was, I was right at the line, but I could, I could still qualify. So I thought, okay, I'll give it one chance. I'll put in a package. And we had a, a guy from the command who, Actually, I did a platoon with who just got picked up. So I talked to him about it, and he kind of gave me some advice on on the package. But I said, if if I pick up chief this year, regardless of what happens, that's that's the route I'm going. <laughs> so I put in the package and go through the whole process. And that year, they took 300 packages, and they accepted 150. So I had a 50% chance. Mm-hmm. I took the chief's exam that year. And I think 6% advanced to chief Damn. in the Navy. So I had a 6% chance of being a chief or I had a 50% chance of being an officer. And I actually got picked up for the program that year, but the chief results hadn't come out yet. And I was determined, again, if I got picked up for chief, I, w- I would just turn down the program. But, uh, but I didn't make chief that year. So I was like, Damn. okay, this is where I'm going. And then what, then what, you had to go to college to get that program, get through that program? Yeah. So the unique thing about it, you had to have prior college to go Mm. and the benefit, and I I joined the Navy right out of high school. I mean, I graduated on Friday, that Monday I, I was, I was gone. But when I went to DLI, that that was a DLI is actually a, uh, an accredited university and uh, they have an accreditation. And while you were there, if you took a couple of extra classes at Monterey Peninsula College, you could actually get a um, an associate's degree in foreign language. So, you know, you're already in study mode when when you're there. So it's like, yeah, easy. I'll take a couple extra courses. You know, do a lab on a weekend or something. And so I, I did that. So I actually had two years of college on on my record, and that's what I used to get in because they only gave you you had to finish. And, well, they only gave you two years, but you had to be done before 31. And that was the other problem. I was going to be 31. You had to be commissioned before you were 31. And I could only, I only had like three semesters. But, you know, I've been through DLI. I knew I could study. I I was a calm guy. I I can do this. (laughs) Calm guy can do it. You know what's freaking ridiculous? The program I did. The program I did. I was an E5 at Team 1. I packed up my shit. I went to OCS for 13 weeks, and then I was an officer at SEAL Team 2. And that was the better program. It was the freak. It was ridiculous. It's the reason. That's why it doesn't exist anymore, because it yeah. was too good. It was too I, awesome. I agree. 
I agree. Like yeah, I, there, there. I had. By the way, I had zero college. It was like, okay, cool, yeah, go ahead, be an officer now. It was like, are you? I was kind of looking over my shoulder, like, are you serious? This is, is this happening? Cool, cool, right on. Yeah, it's. Uh, I feel bad. You had to go and, you know, get your DLI done, and now you had to go back to college and get a degree, man. That's, well, the bad. I guess the. Worst part about it, now, were you guaranteed to go back to the teams? Yep. I wasn't. God. So I had, when I accepted, it was, and it was part of the interview process, like, well, what if you don't come back to the teams? Mm -hmm. Because at the time, you know, again, this is the 90s, late 90s, you know, they, it, 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 they didn't have that, that, uh, that, you know, opening. So I, uh, now that you say that, here's the difference. They took 50 people from the entire Navy for my program. You know what I'm saying? So like the chances of getting picked up from my program were next to nothing because there was at least, at least a thousand of applications of people. I mean, that's my guess. That's not an official number, but a lot of people applied for that program because it was such a good program. It was created and endorsed by the chief of Naval operations. Like it was a big program and it was freaking hard to get picked up. So I guess that's why. When you look at it percentage-wise, you, you, not too many people got that program yeah. that I got. I freaking got lucky. So for me, <laughs> when yeah, by accepting the program, I was coming out of the community. They let me go to school, and but when I graduated as, and got commissioned as an ensign, they could have sent me to you know to SWO school. They could have, you know you could <laughs> be a pilot, you could be whatever. And you had to reapply to get back into the community, mm-hmm. which meant I had to take the that PT test, Dang. you know, from the All Hands magazine. <laughs> I don't think it changed that much, but we had to take that again. There was a couple of other guys uh, guys with me. One I, I saw last night, but uh, we yeah you had you had to reapply. You had to put in your oh. package, and uh, I remember driving up to D.C. to meet the detailer mm-hmm. and. Not the uniform one, but uh, but the civilian one that really ran things, and uh, talking to her, yeah. you know, giving her our package, yeah. and you know, hey, you know, we, we really want to get back. It was me and, and my uh, my buddy, and uh, and yeah, but I mean, we had good scores because mm-hmm. I mean, my bachelor's degree after being at DLI was yeah. was a joke, and uh, I mean, it, and when that's your only job is to go to college because I was still getting my paycheck, not any of the, uh, the special pays or anything, but I was getting paid as a yeah. six. They, uh, yeah, that's all you had to do was, was hand in your papers on time, which, you know, I had done yeah. two, three weeks early. So, <laughs> but, so we had strong packages. We yeah. got picked up and, uh, picked back up to go straight in. But there was one guy that was in our custodian that did not. Are you serious? Yeah. Was that, he a not, was he questionable? <laughs> <laughs> he did, he did 71. Sit-ups. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> One of them, huh? <laughs> you called them out. Bro, when I... So, when I was at OCS, before I left, one of the Master Chiefs at Team One said, hey, when you're getting ready to graduate OCS and you talk to the detailer, as you just described her, the civilian detailer that actually runs everything, he goes, when you talk to her, tell her when you want orders, Tell her to look in her top left drawer for your orders. And I go, okay, roger that, Master Chief. 
So I'm at OCS, I'm whatever, three weeks from graduation, we can finally use the phone, and we got a square away orders. I call the office, I said, hey ma'am, my name is you know Jocko Willink, and I'm about to graduate, and I was trying to get orders, I wanna go to, I was hoping to go to team two. And she goes, wow, we got it. She like, starts going off. Well, you know, the failed. And the, you, you, I, I'm gonna have to look at that. And I, I said, and then I, I listened to her, and she was not sending me there. And then she go, and then I said, uh, Master Chief so and so. I said, Master Chief so and so told me to ask you to look in your top left drawer for your orders, for my orders. And she goes, Oh, where do you want to go? <laughs> and I go team two, and she goes, Okay, I cut your orders this afternoon. Boom, done. How's that for some good old boy network activity? <laughs> That's so crazy, right? She was powerful. 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 So, when, And she always took care of me, and she took care of me, and she took care of all of my friends. Yeah. All my friends. All my friends, she was awesome. No, she was so, good to me, too. And, and when, uh, so when she, when we found so out funny. that we were going, you know, we were getting back into the community, she's like, all right, so where do you want to go? And before I could even say it's like anywhere on the East Coast, because I was, again, you know, this I, I was wanting to go back out uh, to the West Coast. You know, I speak Vietnamese. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Is that because you'd gone to because you went to college on the East Coast? I did because I that was the only school that was. Yeah, I didn't say that. So I I had I had to graduate in three semesters, mm-hmm. and I wanted to stay on the West Coast. So I applied for uh, UCSD and you know, all, all the local yeah. ones. Got accepted to all of them. However, they all said you have to do at least two years, two years minimum. I guess that, you know, that's how they yep. get their money. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I was actually at a point where I didn't find any place that would let me go for three Dang. semesters. So I actually called the, um, uh, the guy in charge of the program. He was a civilian. And I said, look, I, I've tried everything. I just, I just can't. Because you had to submit like a uh, – a, a degree plan mm-hmm. and uh, I said I, I, I'm i coming up short I, I, I don't have anything so I got to turn it down he goes hmm. he goes call this guy he's a retired captain 06 captain at uh, Norfolk State and see what he can do for you so I'm like all right call him up start telling my story and uh, he like stops me halfway he goes look just send me all your transcripts just fax them good old boy yeah. Good old boy network coming at you once again. So I fax him all you know all my yeah. all my paperwork. Within thirty minutes, he faxes me back a training program, and they didn't get. It. They said if you can do it in one semester, we'll graduate you, Damn. and we'll get you commission. I'm like, all right. So I turned that in. I got accepted, and but yeah, we had to move to Virginia to uh, to to go to school, and then once I graduated. It was uh, an East Coast team. So when, where were you when September 11th happened? So I, what was I, your status? So I, you I was college, still at school, right? and but I was in my last semester, and it was a couple of a couple of months before graduation because I graduated in December, and I remember I was uh, at home working on on a paper, and I was listening to uh, to the local radio station, uh, the talk radio, and. They came over and says, we're getting some reports, something happening. I got up, turned on the TV, and and that's that's where I was. And I remember that day I was getting phone calls on my on my cell phone from people from all over 
that I didn't know. And they were trying to call somebody else, but I guess all the towers were real screwed up. So calls were getting directed to people that, hmm. that it wasn't because they would, I'd answer the phone. It's like, is Scott there? You know, they're, they're panicking. I'm like, he got the wrong number. He goes, no, this is Scott's number. I'm like, sorry, man, I, I, I don't, I don't know anybody. And I got a couple of those, but, um, and then like every other team guy, you know, I'm, I'm looking and I already had orders. So I knew what command I was going to by that point. And, uh, but I only had a couple of months left. So, uh, you know, I wasn't making calls like get me, you know, get me there. Cause I, I knew I was going there within a couple of months. So I just had to finish that one semester, graduate, get commissioned. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, that day I got commissioned. I left the university, drove straight from Norfolk to Virginia beach and checked into uh SEAL team four. And then what was your role at team team four when you got there? So this was another one of the, I, f- I found out that kind of the issues of the program that the day you graduate, you know, so, I mean, new butter bars, Ensign Gifford <laughs> is, and I'm now a day at day one. Well, all of my, everyone at the team, all the officers, especially the JOs, you know, there's, they've been a jail for a year and a half mm-hmm. because they had to, you know, finish school, go to Buds, go to, go Buds, to jump school, go to SQT, all that. Guns. So I'm behind know, them technically by a year and a half, even though I've had 12 years in the mm-hmm. community at this point, I'm to them, I'm just day one uh, ensign. And so all the platoons are filled and I show up and, uh, you know, the, again, this is right after 9 11. So, you know, everything's crazy, but things haven't changed enough yet to where they start deploying, you know, people differently. So we're still sending, you know, people to the different theaters and, uh, and I show up and of course I want to get in a platoon I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. And they're like, ah, yeah, everything's filled. So, uh, we're going to make you the training officer. And which I was okay with because having been in training, so I, I can, I can run training. That's, that's not hard. However, at that time, all the training had been taken away from the teams and centralized. Yeah. So I was more of a, like an L and O from the command to the, uh, to the training department, which again, wasn't, wasn't bad, but, but at that, also at that time, they didn't, uh, they just do like the unit level training, mm-hmm. but the training where you train with the people that you're going to deploy with hadn't happened or that was still at the team. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of my focus was coming up with a, a good ORE. And, uh, you know, at that, of course at that time, the big thing was the, you know, the weapons of mass destruction. So mm-hmm. we had to come up with stuff where guys were wearing mop gear and Check. all that craziness. But, uh, so that, that was kind of my, uh, my focus, uh, during that, that, uh, that first workup. But then right before, deployment one of the jos of the, the platoon that's going to afghanistan gets fired Oof. and ding 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 yeah. ding 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 where ding, am ding. I? I i'm like <laughs> and i i didn't have a job you know when you deploy because you know, yeah. the whole team deployed i was just going to be an ops assistant but i'm ready to go and so they ended up putting me in that platoon as uh as the third o uh, or yeah, yeah, third O at the time, which again is kind of crazy because you know, I'm 12 years, and uh, I think the big learning experience from that was 
it was tough for a lot of the other JOs because, again, we were still sending guys to South America, to uh, uh, other theaters, mm-hmm. to you know, because we still had responsibilities there. Right. And here's me, who's junior to everybody, and I get the one platoon that's going to Afghanistan. And uh, so I could tell in the J.O. jungle that uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't their favorite person. Right. But, you know, again, I was a lot older than most of them, and, and their approval wasn't really what I was looking for. <laughs> but, um, but it was, it was a, a, a great opportunity, but there were, there were problems there. And even inside the platoon, there were you know, some feelings that, uh, you know. Why did the guy get fired? Uh, I don't remember. I, I wasn't really part of that. It was yeah, it was something internal. I never really asked. You know, my when I showed up to the platoon, my thing was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just here to to do what I can to make the platoon better. You know, we're we're going to Afghanistan, and at this time, that was right when Iraq was starting up. So a lot of the focus wasn't on Afghanistan. Everybody was kind of focused on Iraq, and. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm like I'm. I'm here to help out. You let me know how I can do it. But again, the hard part, and e- even for me, you know, I'm I'm not a one year ensign. I'm I have 12 years in, and I've done a lot of stuff. I've and it was hard for me at times. And this was kind of my first being uh, as an officer in a platoon. Yeah. You know, I had a lot to learn. Of you know, you're not, you know, the E6. Mm-hmm. anymore you're want to learn want to hear when i learned that so i'm at team two mm-hmm. i freaking have an awesome platoon filled with awesome guys and we're going on a trip and we're building a pallet and we already talked about pallet building today like hey you're gonna make a squared away pallet so i'm I, i'm down there i'm seeing the pallet being built and i'm like hey we need to move this box over here we need to get to put put these rigs over here and i start building the pallet and, and my LPO, who's a freaking great guy and a great friend of mine, uh, Scotty Neal, Navy SEAL, who unfortunately passed away, but he's a, he was a freaking great LPO. And he, he looks at me and he goes, hey, sir. And I was like, oh, damn. He goes, why don't you let me do my job and you go do yours? And, and it was the perfect thing to say to me. And I, I just was like, he's 100% right. I'm down here trying to build a pallet. These guys, this is this is what they do. This is his domain, right? The LPO is going to run that shit. And I was down there stepping on his toes. And I, from that point on, in the 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 switch went to my head that if if I don't need to be giving my input, I'm not going to give it. If I don't need, I don't need to prove to anybody that I know how to build a pallet. No one cares. They want to build the pallet. It's their pallet. They want to come up with the with the with the navigation route. They, and you know what? The the hardest one, obviously, is like, oh, they want to come up with a communication plan. If it's going to work, if it's a viable plan, we're going with their plan, and I'm not going to interfere with it. And that's the that's the moment, the exact moment in time when Scotty Neal said to me, "Hey, sir, why don't you let me do my job and you go do yours?" And I was like, "Roger that." Part of me was a little bit paranoid, I think, too, of like, I want to show everyone that I'm a hard worker. Like, hey, I'm, I'm here to move. move, and, and I would continue to do that throughout my career of like, oh, if, if you got stuff to move, I'll move it. And I'll keep my mouth shut. Because I know you guys don't want to hear from me about how to build a pallet, about where to, how to set up the range, about all that stuff. The, that's, the, that's, the, that's the E-man's domain. Yeah. And I didn't mess with it. As long as there was viable plans happening, we're going with, with the with what the plans are. No, so true, and I, I had a 
very similar experience. I think it was even with a pellet as well. <laughs> and uh, I was very fortunate that the LPO was just so squared away. Just one of the best people I've ever worked with. Still a very good friend. And uh, but because I was in his squad, you know, I, I I dealt with him quite a bit. And we came up with a signal that if I was out of my box, <laughs> yeah. so if we were at a meeting. He would like rub his forehead or something, <laughs> and that was like, okay, shut up and just let let things go. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just phenomenal guy, and 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 you need that because again, it's it's hard for us that had that background to uh, to to uh, step back and, and learn that. But yep. yeah, it's amazing. And I, I, well, I, when I had in my second platoon, I had the the officer that got fired, and I had the legendary officer takeover and he was super experienced he was a prior senior chief he was a prior senior chief and he didn't put his he didn't he didn't tell us how to build pallets he didn't tell us how to do anything he asked us he put us in charge he was awesome and and as soon as my lpo said to me hey why don't you go to your job i was like man that's what that's what the best leader that i saw did Mm -hmm. he did that for us and i'm going to do that from now on Good little lesson learned. Yeah. No, it was. Uh, so, what was that deployment like? So, you're you're pretty early into Afghanistan. Yes. So what year was this? Like 2003. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it was it was it was early, but more importantly, again, everyone was focused on Iraq. So we were kind of a, a like a task unit light. So it was mainly a platoon with some supporting people, some headshed guys, and we weren't really established yet in uh, kind of our our operational sense. So. We, uh, you know, we were just trying to find work, and we did a lot of special reconnaissance, a lot of driving around Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and uh, non-armored up Humvees and you know, with the doors off. It's, it was just too heavy, and um, so we did a lot of those missions. We did a couple of uh, direct action, um, and it, it was it was a it was a good deployment. Again, I learned a, a ton. Uh, I was with really really good people, and um, you know, we had our issues just like like everything else, but. It was a, a, a good learning experience from that, but the main leadership things and the OIC and I had a couple of words sometimes, and and it was I, again I think that because he told me there was a feeling that you know I kind of got lucky to be in this, and uh, I think he made a comment like you know guys some guys really earned to be here. And I was thinking, what do you think I've been doing the last 12 years? <laughs> you know, all, all this, you know, when when I was in my first platoon, you're still riding your huffy bike uh, up and down the street. So, uh, yeah, I, I try not to take it personally. And, you know, it was, it was a lot of growing for me, mm-hmm. too, because, again, it was, it, was, it was kind of a strange time. But, uh, you know, we came back from uh, that, didn't, didn't lose anybody, and, uh, and it was— it was a, a good first deployment to a combat zone because yeah. we got to shake a lot of stuff out, and we weren't really driving like, you know, like uh, we were later, or you know, definitely what you guys were doing later. Yeah, that that's a, such a nice gentle ramp up, and I had that too. Uh, like even even literally when I got to Baghdad in my first deployment, my the the SEA who's a freaking like awesome guy. His wife used to say that me and him were soulmates, but we just always got along like brothers. And but he was already on the ground, and so we showed up. And the night we showed up, he's like, "Hey, we're getting 
mortared from this area. Take your platoon out and go check it out. And so we're like, I'm like, okay, cool. And basically he just kind of made it up just to get us out there, shake out the whatevers, get, okay, look, you're in Iraq now, get over it, it's time. And then you came back and he's like, all right, cool. Now let's look, start looking at our first mission. But that's, and then that whole deployment was a nice ramp up of, of learning opportunities to learn. Going back to your point of like when someone says, you're lucky to be here. I was just talking about this on the academy, uh, training leaders and one, it's, such a good, and we actually just talked about this on the underground. Uh, just, just saying, like, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. A- and it's so disarming to people when you say, yeah, you know, I'm 100 percent lucky to be here. Absolutely. And I wish I had that advice. Well, we all wish. We all wish. We all wish we had that advice. You know, you're talking to the guy that was telling the instructor of our communications course that no, it's Zulu time. Zulu is always Zulu. Zulu is always Zulu. I was 19 years old. That guy was what 35. He was a senior chief. Uh, he he was, was definitely a chief. He's a chief. Yeah. He, yeah. So he's he he a chief. Been. So I'm telling a chief. Hey, listen, chief. Let me tell you how it is, bro. Jocko's got a word to put out, son. <laughs> so yeah, we all we all wish we could go back and maybe freaking check some stuff, but that's that's a good one. You know, like hey, when somebody tells you something, and well, you, it's like okay, yeah, absolutely. It's disarming. It's a good way to understand what their perspective is. It's a good move. It's a hard one to learn. It is. Because that's a shot, right? You're like looking at him, literally thinking to yourself, are you kidding me right it was, now? It's a total ego thing, yeah. and I fell right into it. And, uh, but yeah, it's, but you know. What was your op tempo like on that deployment? It, it wasn't. Uh, not too crazy? Not too, I mean, we were doing like long patrols, mm-hmm. like week long, you know, eight days, nine days uh, with resupplies, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was, it was tiring on the guys, it wasn't real strong kinetic. It was just long, long drives. And you know, we'd just drive around and see what mm-hmm. what we could find and we'd talk, you know, try to talk to people, try to get an idea. And the, what 2000, was going on. the IED threat wasn't heinous yet. No, no. And, and again, we were in non up armored Humvees. We had the doors off, yep. you know, so we could uh, easily uh, engage. And um, so, yeah, that, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't big at that point. Mm-hmm. So then what'd you get, what'd you do when you got home from that deployment? So I got home, I'm like, all right, you know, now, now I can finally do my AOIC slot because that was, you know, really what I wanted. I wanted to start at the beginning so you could, you know, do a good mentoring. And, uh, I get back and say, Hey, I'm, I'm ready for my platoon. And they're like, Oh, you just did it. <laughs> you just had your yeah. AOIC slot. So it's on a fit rep. Yep. So, um, so now you got to wait another two years because now, because I'm still behind. So my year group is still mm-hmm. kind of working their way through uh, SQT yeah. at this point. And, uh, but I've already had my thing. So uh, the, the new CEO of the command uh, came in and I, I talked to him. And again, it was like, all right, how, how am I going to be relevant? So at that time, a lot of people were getting the, uh, uh, going to the Army ASO schools because that was. Uh, so like advanced that, special operations stuff. Right. And uh, so I'm like, all right, that's, that's what you, uh, is that what you need? Then I'll go it. And it was, again, nobody wanted to do it because they had to deal with the Army. And I knew why. And because uh, the, the one school was in Bragg for mm-hmm. like. Three, two months, three months. It, it was a long time. Uh, probably two months. 
And uh, it was exactly four-hour drive from Virginia Beach to Bragg. And it was you know one of those regular schools, you do it during the week, and then on the weekend you do whatever. I had to, in the beginning, I, I would drive home for the weekend and then drive back on, on Sunday for class on Monday. And I had to, I stopped driving home because I knew if I went home, I, I wouldn't go back. Because I hated it that bad. <laughs> and it was just what, the way, what part did you hate about it? It's just the way the army ran it. You know, it was kind of the protector of the tab type thing. And it wasn't just me because there were just a couple of Navy guys, and mm-hmm. it, was, it was mostly army, all SF guys, and uh, and all all great people. And and I got along with with everyone. And uh, but it was. And even they were getting frustrated mm-hmm. from the silliness, and it was silly. And you know, all of us had you know what twelve, thirteen, fourteen years. I mean, these were senior guys, and like you know, I still got to prove to you that I, I get to be here. Like what kind of stuff were they making you prove? Just it was a lot of the stuff was very subjective, mm-hmm. and you know they would they would test you, so they would fail you on something to see how you how you reacted. And some guys were like screw this, I don't need this, and they would just leave. And then, uh, but, you know, they were just kind of wanted to test you, so you have to do it again, and it was a lot of just kind of administrative kind of stuff that, and I was a class leader, which, mm-hmm. you know, so I had to meet with them every day, and, you know, they had to tell me how to take out the trash and all that, or whatever, okay. Get some. Yeah, but, you know, I, I got through it, and, and it was good because the, the community was just, it wasn't something that we were used to, and we didn't really have anybody quality. I think it's better now. But we needed that. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we got on that next deployment to Iraq, it was uh, it was somewhat a, a benefit to have that that type of skill. And the uh, so I, I had a like a small cell mm-hmm. of mostly chiefs because, again, all the platoons were filled. But you had uh, guys that weren't in a platoon. So um, we all just got trained up and then when we deployed we kind of got farmed out to to different units and our uh, command had the uh, PSD uh, personal security mm-hmm. detachment for the the, the top five so and this is now this is now 2005 uh, yeah uh, yes yeah okay it was the, that summer got it pretty sure got it and uh, so we my team of guys again kind of got farmed out because the army was kind of running that mm-hmm. at the time so i got put into an oda house north of oh, uh, of uh, a baghdad and for about three months hmm. and because their guy that did that job had to leave was it on a river no, not, no. I, I, I did some work up there. I was on yeah. the river. It's, it's a, actually a crazy area and an awesome ODA team. Yeah. But. And, and I have to say that these guys were phenomenal to, to work with. And, uh, you know, I get asked all the time. I'm sure you do, too. You know, who's better, the Army SF or, or SEALs? And, I mean, obviously we are. But, <laughs> the, uh, but, but truly, I mean, these guys were professional, like awesome professionals and their concept of was a little bit, you know, they just did things a little bit different, not better or worse, but uh, they, they were just a well-developed uh, group of guys. And what struck me as the, 
is the most beneficial and what I really admire them, the, the, the leaders, the, so the OIC and they had a senior enlisted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They only had one officer. So I show up and, you know, they didn't ask for me, you know, or really at, they needed some help, but, and I show up mm-hmm. and uh, I talked to the OIC and, and, uh, we were about the same age and we, you know, talked for a little bit. And so they, they have a meeting of the, uh, the group of the house. So, uh, they bring everybody in and I remember, you know, they kind of introduced me to everybody and, uh, you know, they made a couple of Navy jokes, which was fine. But then the, the senior enlisted who, again, just a phenomenal individual, he goes, so today, Mr. Gifford is, is part of this team and he is one of us and they, they call themselves the Eagles. He goes, today he is an Eagle. And from as long as he lives in this house, he is an eagle, and you will treat him that way. And uh, from from that whole time there, I felt like I was part of the team. And I, I you know, even though we didn't go through the same training or anything, I, I they brought me in, and they were just a phenomenal, phenomenal group of guys. And how long were you up there working with them? About three months. What was what were you doing? So, I mean, with this new skill set, which we'll yeah. say is pretty much intelligence, yeah. gathering yeah. intelligence through right. various methodologies is what you're doing, and you are basically helping them gather intelligence? So I, I was the primary like report writer. So Got when it. all the information came in, I did the evaluation on it, write the reports, and send it, and send it out. The reason that we chose to, to do that by farming guys out was because of the PSD mission, you know they they were really relying on on intel mm-hmm. heavily because you know they were going out for public things and you know when there's a threat they want to know about it and there were all these units scattered everywhere so we chose certain specific places that we figured there was some could be some pretty hot intel that concerned right. uh, the top five and they wanted to be able to get that information right Quirk. away. So by having kind of a, a liaison in those houses, if something came up, then they could, uh, uh, we could get the information to our guys uh, doing the mission very quickly. What were the living conditions over there, right? It was, uh, it was awesome. So we lived in a, a house in the middle of, of, of town, and then it was adjacent usually to a Iraqi um, military mm-hmm. base. And then so there... We're like the deep inside perimeter. Right. You had several rings, and uh, you know at that house we we used to get hit maybe at least once a week, if mm-hmm. not more. Uh, and you know we all just go up to the roof. We had stuff everywhere, and it was just you battle until they stopped. You know you weren't moving, so mm-hmm. you just kept going uh, in, until it was over. And uh, so yeah, you had everything right by your bed, and as soon as the Alarm went off because we, we always had somebody on watch that was, uh, they, they would send out and everyone would just go up. And then, uh, then we would run, you know, our operations from there. And then, uh, and we, we did a couple of DAs. I, I did those with, with them and they were good. Again, we went out did to you get train. a partner force that you were working with with the Iraqis that you're on base with, or were you guys just doing hits kind of solo? We, we did have a partner force, but it, we didn't really use them that much. They were kind of on their own. I think 
some of our guys did some some teaching over there, but if we did something, it was it was pretty much just us. And uh, so I went to you know like I would go to the range with the guys, and they would kind of teach me some of their TTPs. And uh, and again, not better or worse, just a little different, mm-hmm. uh, but total professionals. And uh, I was able to to work with them. Yeah, that three months, and it was it was phenomenal. It's one one of the best uh, best parts of that tour, but even on on the wide scale just to be able to work with guys from from that uh that ODA was yeah it was phenomenal so then what so you were only there for 3 months what did you do when you got done with that so after 3 months they they were switching out so they were kind of off cycle from us so they had about you know the same amount, uh, length of deployments but they rotated out that way all SF wasn't ro- rotating out at the same time mm-hmm. <clears throat> so when uh they left the new ODA that took over that house, had everybody they needed, uh, and apparently Chris Gifford wasn't part of yeah, that team. There, there wasn't. Uh, <laughs> it was like yeah, we we appreciate it, but we're good, kind <laughs> sure. of thing. And I, I think it was you know kind of more of a, a headshed thing. And you know, there's there's no way to force you know mm-hmm. no reason to force it on them. You know, I kind of explained to them, you know, this is what we're looking for. If you get this information, please just send it to cool. these people. So I got brought back, and um, the there were two teams deployed at that time. So one from the East Coast and one from the West Coast. The East Coast team was doing the PDS. The West Coast was doing more um, connect type stuff. Mm-hmm. So they needed somebody. Um, I think their ops officer had to go back uh, or something, but they needed a spot field. So. Uh, my command asked if I would just go down and work there for a month. And uh, so I, I did that, and I was just in the ops shop or in in the talk, mm-hmm. uh, running ops, it, getting all the, uh, you know, the briefs in, making sure. And then while they were outside the wire, you know, make sure we were monitoring the, uh, the operating picture and everything. And uh, that's when your old roommate was uh, was down there. Oh, right on. And uh, – <laughs> and, yeah, we, awesome. Yeah, it was awesome because you know now it's, it's him old and me, team one guy. Yeah. <laughs> him and me got to do missions, man, together. Like, really? Yeah, and there was like a weird confluence of events that happened for a short period of time, and we were like out in the middle of Iraq together, just doing ops. And it was it was yeah. pretty freaking cool, man. Yeah, he. Uh, I did. We did one mission uh, together. It was it was kind of a circus, but it was a, a target that was like right outside the gate and i mean you could almost see it if you looked over the wall from mm-hmm. from the uh uh from the compound you could see the the target i mean it was it was pretty close and uh for some reason people came out of the woodwork to go on this op so we had like officers and chiefs <laughs> oh you mean strap masters. Masters. i thought you were talking about enemy personnel no. coming out of the woodwork i'm like no. here we go it's like no no we, we had, had strap hangers galore we had a lot of people who needed to experience mm-hmm. to outside the wire <laughs> and so they were going to be on this thing and uh so they're all looking at the con ops like hey it's only it's only 1200 yards away let's let's get on that one yeah and uh so we're we're you know the op we get out there and it's just a clown show because people are running everywhere. So I look over <laughs> at our uh, friend and he looks at me and he goes, come with me. So we go to like this uh, 
barrier position, you know, we're kind of on the edge as a, uh, as a, you know, blocking position uh-huh. because we're away from everybody. We're like, we're going to sit this one out. <laughs> we're going to sit right here until all this is over. And, and uh, at, you know, it was a dry hole or whatever, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah. funny. He's, he's like a real life Sam Elliott with his attitude. You Definitely. Know? Just like, yeah. well, we're not doing that. <laughs> you know, just like, just a freaking classic. And then, and then, so, so you were done with that, but that's still, you still have more on the deployment, right? So a couple of months left, I, I go back to the PSD mission and we, we just help out. You know, we still have liaisons to uh, some of the uh, outside units. Of course, all the OGAs and all that. So I spent two months just kind of mm-hmm. bouncing around and just helping out in, in ops there just to try to get everything out. I don't think I did any more missions or anything. Most of that was that first three months. So it was just, and then, you know, of course, right before you leave now, all the rewards, all the awards have to be written oh, and yeah. uh, all the, you know, fit reps need to be done. So <laughs> I, uh, I was, I was part of that, uh, you got your officer crew. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, what'd you do after that? So we got back, uh, from that deployment and, uh, and I'm still not up with my, uh, my God. year group. So I talked to the, the CEO and, and either he recommended or, but he's like, why don't you go to Germany for a couple of years mm-hmm. They you can do. A, a, the CEO had been in Germany before, oh, right? Oh yeah. I, I started, you I know who he is. Yeah. yeah. He's like one, freaking awesome. What, one of the top. Yeah. Freaking definitely. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely one of the top five, but he, uh, he's like, you know, you, you should go out there. You'll enjoy it. And, and, uh, I remember he told me. He goes, if you live on base, I will come out there and punch you. Because Damn. he's like, you need to get out in town, live amongst the, yeah. uh, the, the populace the populace, and experience living overseas like you should. I went to his house when he was living overseas in Germany. And it was absolutely freaking epic. I wish I had taken pictures. I wish I knew the name of the village of the house because it's still there. It was like one of these postcard villages. And he had this crazy like old house that was completely like gutted and modernized inside. Mm -hmm. It was freaking Very German. Yeah, it was freaking badass. Yeah, so him. And and by the way, like everything that guy does is like all dialed in. Yeah. Like I remember I was going to his house and he's like, hey, you need to wear a shirt. I'm like, bro, I don't, like I go, I'm wearing a shirt. He's like, no, a shirt, like a, like an actual human shirt, not a freaking jujitsu t-shirt, you idiot. I was like, I was like, I don't have any shirts. And he goes, all right, come. And he opens up his closet. His closet is like a, a room and he's got no kidding hanging up just button down whatever really nice shirts in the color of like the rainbow like starting with what is it red orange yellow green blue purple Bill, with yeah. with freaking nine shirts of red and, and it goes all the way through and i'm like bro are you freaking james bond or what i don't even have a shirt much less 49 shirts of varying colors but yeah, and that was all in this completely dialed house overlooking this green, lush valley. It was crazy beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and again, a phenomenal person, and and for what he's done for the community, and yeah, just just a, a great guy. So he convinced me this would be a good good place to go, and uh, and he was right. It was probably my one of my best tours because uh, you you move your family out there, and you know you're you're part of 
not not the war necessarily because it's it's not in that AO, but you know you're still doing really good good stuff. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, Africa was really starting to pick up. <clears throat> so I was able to uh, uh, be there as that was kind of starting. And again, with my my background and you know all these these uh, Intel type type schools, it was sure. it was a very good fit. So. Um, I worked in the uh, as as a task officer there at the uh, at the uh, unit, uh, and we were moving guys down to Africa. So we were, we would send guys, you know, they would basically check into the unit in Germany and then move straight to Africa for sure, okay. four to six months some, sometimes, and you know working through embassies. So that was my my experience of mm-hmm. you know starting to to deal how the State Department works and how all these other good times oh <laughs> oh yeah yeah that was uh, you know when, when you when you retire and you know what you don't want to do that that was one of I I knew I did not want to uh, State Department wasn't in my uh, but they're good people they, they do they do a hard job they really do uh, so you you wrap up that's what the what's that a two-year billet it's a two-year billet and I was there exactly two years. We we left almost. I mean, exactly two years. And uh, and now it must be time for your platoon commander tour because you already knocked out your AOIC. Yeah. So my everything now I'm aligned with with the rest of my, my year group. So uh, so I get sent to uh, Team Ten to do a platoon commander, and the because I came from. I think because I came from Germany and I understood how the AfricaCom and uh, UCOM work. I can see where this is going. That they put me in yep. that task unit, yep. and and again, I was fine with yep. that because you know, I'm I'm here to support the effort. Nobody wants to do it, then you know I, I don't have anybody breathing down my neck trying to get my spot. So I, I'm I'm finally getting my platoon commander, and I'm I'm just stoked about it. So I show up to uh, Team Ten, and uh, I get in the task unit, and I kind of get an indication pretty soon that the the all the guys that just came back were in I, I think it was Iraq yeah I think they 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 came in from Iraq maybe it was Afghanistan but they just come back they had a really good deployment high energy intensive and uh but now they're on the Yukon and we had a bunch of you know new guys who never I hadn't deployed yet and they're on UCOM and they're seeing all their friends getting ready to Yeesh. go to Afghanistan, Iraq. Cause I think we were, we were still sending people to both. So yeah, there was that kind of idea that, you know, that that's where we want to be. And, and Hey, I get that. But, uh, as our, our, uh, mutual chief used to say, uh, you know, order orders aren't invitations. They're, they're orders. And this is what you're given. And you need to, it's, it's our responsibility as the leadership to make sure our guys are, are ready for that. And that's, that's what I was doing. But there was a lot of, you know, you know, if we're, if we do really well, then, you know, we'll get move over to here. Somebody will get fired and, you know, we'll, we'll be able to take that mission. And, and again, there's always that chance, mm-hmm. but there's also the chance you're going to do what they, what you were assigned, what to you do. were assigned to do. So we really need to, to focus on that. And there, there was a big uh, I guess kind of rub between you know me and and the leadership, and especially being in Germany for two years. I, I, I saw platoons come out all the time, and you could tell the ones that were 
ready to do the mission and accepting, and they did a great job. And then the ones that are like, hey, we're just sitting here until we get the word that we're going in. Mm-hmm. And guess what? The word never comes. <laughs> you know, I mean, again, yeah. they may take ones or two because somebody gets hurt, but you know, we have a mission too here. Right. So there, there, there was a big leadership challenge on my side. Is you know, I, I need to keep the guys motivated interested in this job and i would tell them you know there's there's good stuff going on there's there's really important stuff and uh and for the most part i think the guys accepted that some some mm-hmm. didn't but uh but yeah that that's it's it's a tough tough thing to to work through i remember one thing that always always stuck in my mind there was a a master chief faculty so master chief faculty um who died in 2017, but he was a huge, had a big Im- impact on all of us at Team One at the Absolutely. time. But I remember him telling me a story that there was a, a Vietnam guy that had come home that had done like a pretty heroic deployment in Vietnam. And that guy was facts like LPO. And they're out in the desert doing the desert warfare training. And that guy who was like the combat vet, he was like they're out on patrol and he had his like rifle up over his shoulder and just kind of like walking like it didn't matter. And and he just and he was he he I think he was the platoon chief. And you could see the just disappointment as Fack was telling me this story. And it was one of those things that again, he probably told me that when I was 22 or 23. I never forgot that fact. Not only of hey don't be the guy that's like been there done that i don't need to be fired up for training anymore but also what an impact that has on everybody else and you don't want to be like that then fast forward however many years i was now at trade at west coast trade at and i had a guy that's a great guy and he was in he was in ramadi with me as a new guy and now he's in his second platoon and we're out at the mount facility and like you know we're training's hard and kicking ass and blah 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 and i i talked to him about whatever but i remember him saying to me he says uh i'm kind of getting burnt out and this was during mount training in his second platoon and i'm like <laughs> i just i go hey bro you remember when you and i were in a workup together and he goes, yeah. And I go, that was my seventh workup. And he was like, he just got that look on his face. And he goes, Roger that. Because I was fired up in my seventh freaking time to go. Let's rock and roll. Like every taking everything seriously. And that's just what you want to do. So it, that infection can spread. Um, and it's a hard pill to swallow. Team guys want to go to combat. That's what they want to do. And when they don't get the chance, it hurts, and but like you said, you gotta pick it up. Okay, this is what we're doing. Let's do it to the best of our ability, and and the only thing you can do is just keep going on deployments. Like the God of War is gonna do what he's gonna do, and if hopefully you get blessed by him. And if that happens, great. And if it doesn't happen, keep working because he's watching. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, no, and, <laughs> and you and you saw it. You know, guys would uh, you know kind of have to get through that rotation but then the next one they they go back uh, or you know they get another shot yep. at, uh, at combat and you know we all knew eventually it was going to calm down anyway 
but nobody knows when, and nobody you don't want to miss when. it. You don't want to miss and, it. And I really felt for the new guys because you know all they're seeing is their friends that are going, and they didn't do anything yeah. wrong, and that that was really a a big kind of complaint that I had about how it was perceived is, you know, we're waiting for, you know, if they get into trouble, then we get into that spot. It's like, well, so are we here because we got in trouble? You know, how do, how do we end up here? And are we hoping that our teammates are screwed up? Yeah. Because that's not a good attitude. So, so we get that spot. So I, you know, my thing was, look, again, the war is bigger than just what's going on in, in CENTCOM. We have a mission to do. It's a good mission. It has value. And, uh, and, you know, thinking back, you know, maybe I could have done better uh, on certain things. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was what it was. And, and we actually had a good deployment. I took a, a crew of, uh, of, of people to, uh, to Africa and we were there for several months and we, we did good stuff. And, and, uh, you know, I like to think that we, you know, moved the needle hopefully a little bit, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it was, yeah, you know, I think, and I think, most people that were with us kind of got that after a while. And then what'd you do when you got home from that deployment? So I got home and, um, so I'm looking at TU commander and, uh, but I, I didn't want to stay at team 10 for different reasons, but, but those f- positions were already filled. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay. I, I need to to move on, and so now I'm I'm caught up to my year group, but it's still a little bit different because I've had all these other experiences, and because of a lot of the you know, victim of my own success, a lot of the <clears throat> schools I went to kind of put me on a little bit of a different track, mm-hmm. which was fine, and uh, so I uh, I ended up taking a. Uh, uh, an ops tour at uh, another command there in Virginia and which was great. And again, great experiences and, and everything. Uh, but it's, it's kind of where I was when that was coming to an end. They, uh, I met with the detailer. So now I'm at 21 years, Mm -hmm. 21 and a half years. And, uh, I met with the detailer and I wanted to take over, East Coast training, the CEO of that kind of, which you did, but on, on the East Coast. And I knew the guy that had the position, good friend. And uh, I talked to him about it. He's like, oh, yeah, you, you would do great here. And it it, it lined up. And uh, so I talked to the detailer, and he goes, uh, you, you need more joint time. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Which means, you know, you get orders to probably Tampa, mm-hmm. and you move your family there. And at least at the time, then you deploy overseas for a year or so and write reports for others and, uh, and work on your JMP and, you know, all, all that. And your, your, your family sits there and, and to, cause it's a PCS move. And at the time, you know, my wife had a great job in Virginia. She was working for the, the governor's office and, uh, you know, she wasn't really wanting to move. So I was thinking, okay, you know, maybe I can do kind of a, a bachelor kind mm-hmm. of thing. And, uh, but then I thought, you know, it, it's, I've had 21 years then. I, I think maybe this is time that I find something else. And uh, I was very fortunate. The Navy was great to me. I got to do everything that I wanted to do. I had a great career. And I, I, I felt like I had closure. And I don't 
you know, put it on the detailer. I mean, he's he's trying to fill these billets. Yep. And for an officer at 10, 11 years, that is a that's great right move. move. Yep. And, you know, that's going to set you up for uh, your XO tour and, you know, probably another staff job and, and CO. But, you know, I wasn't an officer at 12 years. I was an officer at 21, 22 years. And uh, I just I just felt it was it was time to uh, to uh, retire and uh, and try something else. And so I went home and talked to uh, my wife about it. And she's like, uh, I was like, yeah, I'm thinking about retiring. She's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Go in Monday, drop my uh, put my paperwork to uh, to retire, and went back and I'm like, okay, I did. She goes, what'd you do? I'm like I retired. She goes, you did what? <laughs> It's like, yeah, yeah, it, uh, I did it. How long was it between when you dropped your papers and when you actually retired? Uh, probably about six months or so. You know, you have to, mm-hmm. I had a lot of, you know, leave built up that I needed to get rid of. And um, I had made lieutenant commander, but because I wasn't doing the full time, they they didn't commit you know, or go to that next step. And mm-hmm. then I just retired as a, uh, as a lieutenant. Oh, those savages. Well, you know, they were like, you know, you have to do another three years. And honestly, I, I did the math. Yeah. And yeah, going from O3E to O4 is not that big of a jump than going from a regular O3, especially when mm-hmm. you have, you know, 20-some years. And the math, uh, I, I think I would have gotten maybe an extra 100 bucks on my retirement. <laughs> and it, it just wasn't worth another three years. I, I felt like I wanted, you know, I could do something else. and. So how was the transition? What'd you do next? Well, so it was a lot harder than I thought it would be uh, because, you know, again, this, we grew up in the SEAL teams Mm -hmm. and we all, I mean, that's, that's, that's what we knew. That's what we did. And uh, even, even to this day, I I tell people, I I still have dreams that I'm still in uniform and uh, you know, I'm, I'm at some command somewhere and I'm talking to to people, but I, I'm I'm still. Somebody in, just in called because one of the guys got in trouble. Yeah, like I always have that dream. Like, oh gosh, God, someone got arrested. Get someone got a DUI. Like here we go. I got to go yank somebody out of jail. Whatever. So, so it was it was you know I have to have a new focus and uh, you know a new mission, and uh, so my thing was I I want to learn about business. I've been in government since I was 18, 19, and. You know, I've been in leadership positions, and I, I think you would agree. You know, we, the leadership's not different. Nope. There may be some different terms, but it's it's all the same. But there's other things about business that I didn't really understand, like what is marketing and what is, uh, you know, social media was a big, you know, was starting to be a big thing. And, you know, at that time, we couldn't even have yep. any accounts on social media. And I, I think I think it's changed now. I think it's a little bit better because it, it kind of hurts guys getting out that don't have that presence because that, that's how a lot of business is, is done now on, mm-hmm. on uh, LinkedIn and stuff. So I felt I, I, I need to learn business. I need to get, get more informed on that. And I still had half of my GI Bill left. So I thought, you know, I could go to grad school, but I, I, I still want to learn a little bit more about how, how it runs first. So, mm-hmm. so I, I make sure if I go to grad school for a business degree, that's really what I want to do. So I, I look for just a way to get into business. So one thing, I had a friend who 
uh, a pilot friend that got out kind of the same time. And he was starting a consulting company, and he asked me about coming on as a uh, as kind of like a, a 1099 contractor. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. So I'm, yeah, that's that's fine. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll work with you, and, and we'll do that. And as I was doing my uh, trans, you know, the uh, transition classes, the uh, what do they call it? The they call it tap. I tap. didn't do it. Yeah, I didn't do any of it. So I did tap. I just said later. <laughs> yeah, it was it was mostly a. Uh, I want I want to say it's a waste of time because it, it it is it, it had some value to it, but they had like this entrepreneur class. Yeah. which was an hour it was during your lunch hour so there instead you of you ate your lunch at a table and somebody talked about it so they said um if you want to start a business just find something you like and start a business so i'm thinking what what do i like to do what you know what would be fun i knew i did not want to do government so i didn't want to work for any of the alphabet soup i didn't want to do um uh you know stay on at mm. any of the commands or you know work work uh, as a as a GS, I just want to do something totally different, real business. And uh, I thought, you know, I, I love music. I've been playing music all my life. I'm going to join a band. Somehow and we missed this whole story. <laughs> what freaking music did you play? I, I played uh, upright bass. Well, actually, when I was at like Team One, I was I played saxophone. That's right. I remember yeah. that you played saxophone. And I would bring it on That's the trips. Right. I had a little alto. I, now I remember that. Yeah, I forgot about that. And I would blow up that sax, yeah. bro. <laughs> and I was not that good. I was actually. I remember that. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I was I was not good. And I played, you know, through high school and and uh, but I was never really good mm-hmm. enough to to do it. But I always liked the bass. It was always something that I, I really enjoyed. Did and, you play it? When no. did you start playing? Oh, so you just liked it. Yeah. Okay. But, check. but I had enough music background mm-hmm. that, that I could, uh, I could fig- I'll, I'll yeah. figure out. So I just bought one, started learning how to play When you it. say bass, are you talking bass guitar or are you talking stand up bass? No. So at that time it was electric. Okay. Bass, uh, yeah, bass guitar. And, uh, and for some reason it just, it just came like it was natural. Easier than Vietnamese, apparently. Very, very <laughs> much so. And uh, so I kind of took some private lessons, and uh, and yeah, I just kind of took to it. And then after doing that for a while, I, uh, as I was getting out, trying to find bands, there was the the market was was pretty heavy with bass players. It's you know probably it's, you know, a lot of. Uh, Guitar players that don't play yeah. that well play bass. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's true, but that's what they told me. <laughs> so, you know, I need to find how to be, how to stand out. So I was like, you know, I'm going to learn how to play upright bass because nobody wants to do it. It's a big instrument. You have to have a car you know, or a truck. To you have to have a van. A van. <laughs> and it's fretless. So, you know, it just scares people. Right. But I'm going to learn it. So I bought one. How much, is a, how much does a stand-up bass cost? Like for your starter model that you get. So I... I Knew that this is what I wanted to do, so I didn't really. I kind of you bypassed the starter. The, the starter and, and got a nice kind of pro model, a Inglehart, uh, uh, and um, so it was about two thousand, around two thousand. That's it. Yeah. Dang, bro. And uh, that's actually well, way cheaper than I thought it was going to be. But you know, it's a plywood. It's not like a carved, mm. you know, two hundred year old. Bass. I have good electric guitars that are way more than that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely! More than that, absolutely. a ridiculous amount of money because I'm stupid. But this, you know, it, it's a new, it's, it's a new one. It's not a classic, but mm-hmm. it, it plays really well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I worked on that. So when they don't have a fret, how do you know where to hold down? 
So there, are, I do have markers on the side. Uh, it's okay. like uh, like the dots that right, are on a right. guitar. It's the same, and uh, but you you have to listen, and and it really forced me to listen to what the rest of the band is doing and make sure I'm I'm you know got the right tone, and um, yeah, I just I worked on it. Like I took six months of just how many playing. hours a day? Oh, two three. Hours and I'd take a break and go back to it and uh, yeah, just worked on so it. So you mean five to six hours a day? Uh, not that much. Okay. Probably yeah, about two or three hours. But you retired every at this point. Day. This is when yeah. you retired. Well, no, I was I was still kind okay. of uh, you were on wrapping up your career, wrapping up and and going through uh, uh, terminal leave three three to some three or four hours of base a day. Yeah, and and then when I felt comfortable, I started looking for uh, for bands to play in so uh-huh. i go on you know where else would you go but craigslist, uh, craigslist yeah, yeah there you go and uh just typed in upright bass and sure enough uh, this guy posted that he was doing an acoustic blues thing and he was looking for an upright bass and it's like yeah there's I'll only one <laughs> you got the job yeah. well so i called him up and uh or messaged him or whatever and he said you know show up to this open mic night uh, Learn to play in front of a real live audience, <laughs> and he he didn't tell me what we were gonna play or anything, and uh, so I showed up, and he's like, "All right, you know, we're playing in this key," and I I was all over the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was nervous. This it was it wasn't my first time playing live, but you know, I was just trying to follow what was going yeah, on. Yeah, because you played sax live in eighth grade <laughs> at the eighth grade freaking student council meeting. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't that bad, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I played a, a couple of songs. I was like, yeah, that that really sucked. And uh, <laughs> afterwards, he goes, okay, yeah, let's let's meet next week and and do another three. I'm like, okay. And by that time, now I knew kind of what he was looking for, and uh, we we did it. And and then we're like, yeah, let's start a band. Brought in a uh, a friend of mine that was a drummer, and uh, eventually a sax player, and we created the band and and my intent again was not really to be a musician it or an artist really and i don't really consider myself an artist I, i'm artistic and i can i understand you know how to do it but i wanted to run the business so i wanted to you know manage the books i wanted to work on the marketing i wanted to learn how the uh how the social media worked and how that you know, worked into getting us gigs. And uh, then we got into recording and writing and I helped, you know, write uh, some of the songs and we recorded a couple of albums so we could sell. Cause that was a big thing when, when you were gigging, you know, it's, it's great to get that, that, uh, you know, that money for the night. But if you have merch, right. Merch, get the merch out there. Then, you know, we, we saw things go up and we could show, I could show each year, you know, we were making more money and we were doing uh, doing better. How and often are you gigging? So, you know, the first year, probably about 30 or so gigs. Dang. But by the third year, I mean, we were touring. So I would do a two-week. So now you're out of the Navy completely. Yeah. And, yeah. and you're going on tour yeah. in your blues band and playing yeah. stand-up bass. Yep. And uh, Herbie D and the Dangerman is the uh, Are you still the the Are band. you still around? No. So I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But the... Um, so by the third year, we're playing probably 180 gigs, making money, making money. Yeah, getting playing how big of shows? 
Clubs? Uh, yeah. I mean, we would get a couple of festivals. We would get, uh, you know, mostly bars, you mm-hmm. know, that, that kind of scene. What do you make a night in the bar? Uh, it depends on, on where you are, but, you know, four, 400 bucks, 500 bucks. And how many people are in the band? Uh, four. Yeah. So from a business perspective. Yeah. I mean, but it. We're thinking to try something else. No, no, not at all. So it, it makes you really look at the, the business uh-huh. model and. Because all, all businesses have, have the same, all successful businesses have the same uh, concept. You got to make it for a dime. You got to sell it for a dollar. You got to make it have it for me. If you don't do that, you're going to go out of business. Now, you can supplement it with outs, outside income, mm-hmm. but eventually it'll fold. You got to make it for a dime, sell it for a dollar, and make it have it for Did me. Did you make that up right there? Or no, it, where does that come from? I learned it when I was uh, at, in in my MBA okay. program. That, no one taught me that, that was, by the way. That was basically my MBA and 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 those those three sentences. Mm-hmm. That that was two years of grad school, but um, but it makes you especially in a in a, a venture like that. It really makes you look at your cost. You know, are you really making it for a dime, or are you spending ninety cents? And of course, the numbers are arbitrary, but. If, if you're if you're not then how do you cut that down so as we were touring you know in the beginning we were getting hotel rooms of course we were all staying in the same room mm-hmm. because you know there were four guys but eventually we're like okay how can we cut that down so we uh, uh like one of the things we got on uh, uh couch surfing have you heard of this mm, yes i have so we when we, i was 19 yeah exactly <laughs> well we had a, a band profile as uh, uh, for for couch surfing, and as we were, as I was making the tour, I would say, okay, we're going to be in this town. We would submit, you know, hey, this four piece band is is coming to town. Could we stay at your house? And surprisingly, <laughs> a lot of people uh, let us do it, that and is, it's it's free. And it's free. It's free. Sure. And uh, and of course, we would we would try to do special stuff. So mm. we of course give them a CD or a T shirt or something, mm. and. Uh, and if we were there for a day or two, we'd break out the instruments in their living room and, and just give them a little concert. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was, it was great. And what was really nice about it is because we stayed with them, we told them where we were playing that night, they would usually come out and bring, bring some friends. friends. Yeah. So that would, uh, you know, butts and seats, that's, that's a big part of it. So yeah, make it for a dime. You, you got to get your costs down. And, uh, and we learned, you know, like, Buy your water, not at a gas station, buy it at Walmart before you go because it's cheaper. Yeah. And all these little things to get it, uh, the price down. And then you look at, are you selling it for a dollar? You know, Are you really getting the, the top price? And you don't set the price. The market sets the mm-hmm. price, you know, supply and demand. And uh, so that's what, you know, we're focusing on. Where can we get the best bang for our buck? You know, if we play at a, um, at a, uh, a festival or something, you know, the, the focus isn't on the money you get to play. The focus is on the merch. Mm-hmm. So having the guys actually push the merch, you know, put the CDs in your hand as you go around and talk to people because they see it in your hand, they want to buy it. And you don't just sit back and wait for them to come to you. You, you got to get out. So are you, you know, making that price? And is there enough of a, a profit margin there that the business is actually going to, to survive? And then the most important part, as you know, you got to make it habit forming. You know, if somebody just watches you once and they're like, "Hey, that was great," and they don't follow you, then 
how are you going to sell them, you know, the new album when it comes out or, you know, your, your new, uh, you know, the new song or whatever, you, you got to get that, that, that fan, you know, down the, the, the funnel to, uh, to get them from interested to fan to real fanatic of, you know, the super fan, or they're going to buy your stuff as soon as it comes out. Um, so that's what I learned during that time. You know, how, how do you actually physically do that? And so we did it for four years and, uh, had, was that your job for four years? Yes. So I was doing a little bit of the consulting Mm -hmm. on the side and there were other like 1099 type jobs Mm -hmm. that I was doing from here to there. But, you know, again, I was very fortunate that I married up. So my wife was making good money. (laughs) Uh, we don't have any kids. So, you know, I'm not putting anyone through college, uh, and I have a good retirement. So I was able to do that full time. And so what happened? So at the end, well, it's like any business, you know, you, you have that arc and, uh, there comes a point where you got to pivot or perish. And, uh, we have been playing kind of the same material for how many albums did you make Two. well, one EP and one LP. And, uh, I watched a couple of your songs on YouTube. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. The guitarist, I think this was like a thing, right? You had that. There's a song where he's playing a guitar that only has three strings. Yeah, GGB is what we call it. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And you think, okay, well, he's got some like the white stripes. He's got some constraints around what he can do, mm-hmm. and it's going to make him kind of push a little bit. I thought that was pretty pretty cool. It is, and and that was you know kind of the you got to break away from the humming and strumming you know, the, the normal stuff, you got to keep updating, especially in the entertainment world, because there's so much competing with your attention. And, uh, so after about four years, we, we needed to kind of change some things, but, uh, the, the lead guy was, you know, he was kind of comfortable where he was and, and we could have kind of gone, uh, you know, a little bit further, but, uh, but the sax player wanted to do some other stuff. So he, he left. And um, we tried to bring in some other people. And, that, and then I was like, you know, this is the time to make a difference. We got to totally change because if we try to keep doing the same thing, we're going to start losing people. And that's what happened. We, we didn't really change enough mm-hmm. drastically that we started to lose fans. And by that point, you know, I've been out of the Navy, been retired for about five years, four, yeah, about four years. And I had enough of a grasp of, okay, this is the things I need to work on that I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going back to grad school. So um, the, I still played a little bit on the side. We did some, some duo stuff, but now I was, I was focused on going back to uh, grad school for my MBA. That's what I did. And how was that program? <clears throat> it was good. Uh, I did it at Old Dominion University there and because it was close. You know, it was uh, easy to, to, to get back. Uh, a lot of people in that area went to ODU, mm-hmm. so you know we had, you know, planned to stay there for the long term. So it it it, it made sense, and uh, you know my the GI Bill covered it, so you know the cost was low. I was <laughs> a dime, and the the return was hopefully a dollar, and uh, and it was good. So it, um, yeah. yeah. Did you do anything with that degree? So yes. So I uh, once I got. Actually, while I was in school, uh, I had talked to a couple of business owners that needed someone to help do kind of due diligence on some uh, some business stuff. So it was small companies that were expanding and looking to to do some different things. 
and and I actually still work for them today. But um, they would so I I would you know do like the the uh, analysis on it. You know, is this uh, the right thing to do? Uh, they're a developer, so they would buy property, and then they would uh, say, okay, what business can we put on here to make make money, and then we'll turn it over. So I would do kind of the analysis of you know if we do this, you and you take out a loan. Here's all your initial costs. If you can keep your you know fixed variable costs, all that, then you can make a profit over a certain period of years. And then they would say, okay, let's let's do it. So uh, so yeah, more of a kind of a business analysis. Um, um, yeah, kind of yeah. kind of work, and it's 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 good work. And when you actually see something, uh, one one of the projects we we did, and it made great money and uh so i got to see all that develop and and uh so yeah it was it was really interesting especially to be able to kind of say this is what i think is happening and then you look at how close it actually did it's not perfect but uh but it was good it was a really uh, it's a good thing and does that bring us up to present day yeah so uh well so when i was in in grad school uh my wife got uh uh, diagnosed with breast cancer and um, yeah it, it, that was it was good being out of the military although you know the teams were great about that stuff but because I was home every day it was uh, good that I could have I could be there and kind of work because it took like two years to go through it from the time she was diagnosed she had three or four um, surgeries and then the chemo and then the recovery from all that took about took about two years and um so i was home for all that i was still going to school but i could i could manage it because you know most of the stuff was uh was at home and um so she went through that and uh when we kind of got through that it was and still in the recovery stage we kind of got into a rut of because she just didn't have any energy. So we we're staying at home all the time, watching TV, just, you know, eating three meals a day or whatever. And just wasn't a lot of activity. And at one point I was like, you know, we, we need to break this cycle. And uh, so we bought a, uh, a small 16 foot camper. And uh, I was like, we're, you know, we talked about this as we, we need to at least once a month, just get out of the house. We didn't have a TV in it. It was, you know, just, just a, a nice, uh, it was an Airstream uh, base camp. Oh, dang. And uh, we're like, we, we just need to get out of the house at least once a month and you know, just kind of get back, even if we just walk around a little bit. Or And it was a campground right there mm-hmm. in Virginia. So we did that for about two years as she was recovering, just going out, just getting in into nature and uh, just you know trying to get – get past that and uh after doing that for two years we were like why why aren't we doing this all the time (laughs) so uh we decided that uh about this was about 15 months ago we said hey let's just let's just sell our house and get rid of all the the extra cars and the extra furniture and stuff we have laying around let's get get a bigger camper because 16 feet is not that small enough to live how big is your new one 30 we have a 30 foot airstream yeah and uh, so we traded that in, got the uh, 30-foot, sold our place. Uh, it was a good time for the market. And uh, so, yeah, for the past 15 months, we've just been touring around, 
North America, just uh, going from place to place, trying to hit a lot of the the national parks. And you know, America is just such such a beautiful yeah. place. And uh, you know, growing up in in the Navy, we traveled all over the place, but never really got to see a lot of the U.S. Even on training trips, you yeah. don't really get to see much. So yeah, that's what we've been doing for past 50 months i still she retired totally after her chemo she lost a lot of a lot of that that drive so we decided you know why don't you take some time off and um i still do part-time work it's all remote they send me emails when they need stuff to do sometimes i take a business trip if mm-hmm. we're you know I'll, I'll fly someplace and come back but yeah we've just been been doing that and uh seeing people like <laughs> You know, opportunity to be here and uh, to use one of the, the the big benefits. But and did you see any end in sight? No, not right now. Just gonna keep rolling. Just keep doing it. Uh, every place we go, we we say, hey, would you know, would we come back here to live? And uh, you know, if we there's some some places we really like. Uh, but what's but, the top of the list right now? Uh, we really like Denver, Colorado. They have mm-hmm. a they have a really good blue scene. So so I I. Have my uh, upright uh, base with me. Takes up half your freaking vehicle. <laughs> it, it does take up a lot, but I have like my little space over by the bed. I can uh-huh. keep anything I want, and that's yeah. that's my music room. And uh, but we, uh, yeah, when we go to these places, I look up blues jams and show up and and get to play with some phenomenal people. And uh, yeah, it's it's just part of the just traveling around, meeting people, and. Seeing really friends and family, I, I I got to see some family in Texas that some on her side that she'd never or I'd never met before, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we've been married over thirty years. Uh, friends, team, you know, guys from the team that now live in all kinds of places, and you know, we stay connected and say, hey, I'm going to be in from this time. If you got time, I'd love to see. If not, you know, I understand, and and uh, so it, yeah, it's been awesome. Pretty awesome. legit, and you're tracking this whole thing on the gram, on Instagram. Yeah, my my wife runs most of that. It's uh, uh, taking leave underscore RV, and she you know posts every day because you know how important you got to for social media. You you got to be consistent. Are you playing any bass riffs on your Instagram? Yeah, I think the people are going to want to hear that. Yeah, she uh, <laughs> she records it live and then you know posts it later. But yeah, when we go to these jams, I I'm I'm up there playing so. Check. It's, uh, well, that's outstanding. Pro- hey, probably a good place to wrap it up. Echo Charles. Yes, sir. Do you have any questions? Yes, sir, I do. So you ran back. Let's go back to high school. Or yeah. You, know, oh, you okay. ran track. Do you, did you do uh, cross country? Damn, you've been did saving this question that? for freaking two hours and 45 minutes. That's correct. You know, my school didn't have cross country. I think some of the other uh, districts did, uh, but my, my school was very somewhat – in an urban area, so we had track. And again, most most of the guys were, were sprinters, mm-hmm. so uh, the uh, so we, we didn't have cross country, but we had long distance on the track, which is mm-hmm. you know going eight circles. And but cross country <laughs> would have been your jam, though. No? Yeah, I, I w- would have loved to do it, and, and of course I, I ran a lot outside of uh, just track. But uh, but yeah, like today. Uh, Another thing I, I try to do as we as we travel, I, I look for great runs, you know, mm-hmm. run, running running places. And I've been kicking around a um, a YouTube video because I, I carry a, a camera with me, and I kind of film little parts of the run. 
And then when I get back, I, uh, of course, upload all that and then put together these four to five minute videos of, you know, this is all kind of the data of the run. You know, this mm-hmm. is how far it is. This is the elevation. You know, is it a lot of hills? Is it straight? What kind of uh, turf is it? Um, you know, what, where do you park? You know, here's the address you want to use to, to get to a parking areas or support. You know, do, is there going to be a bathroom there or, or what? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I've, I've gotten about 30 runs done with, with the raw material. I just started kind of putting them together. I've got four completed mm-hmm. and I've got my process down to about four hours. Okay. So the first one took about couple of days because sure. I had to figure out the format. That's like yeah. Echo's pace on making videos. <laughs> so now, yeah, I can get yes, five, six minute video done in about four to five hours. So, you know, again, it's make it for a dime, sell it for a dollar. You know, if it takes me a couple of weeks to do one video, it, right. it's because you got to be consistent, as you know. You got to post consistently to to get a good following. Would you say that you're, uh, as far as what you'd prefer as far as runs go, do you prefer the two mile, one mile, or 880, or 800 meter? Yeah, so the half mile is not a distance run. I don't know who, that's a sprint. I mean, the guys that are doing it are are sprinting. And I don't know why it was like this, but I remember at the track meets, like the first run was the two mile. Mm -hmm. Then it was the one mile. Then the last one was an 880. So I've already run two races and I'm, I'm wore out and now you got to sprint the 8.8. So I I like the distance running and the runs I do now are anywhere from five to 12 miles long. What's your fastest mile? Back in the day. So when I was running, uh, (laughs) back in the day, (laughs) day, when I, when I was running marathons, then I could get down to a good, um, Around seven minutes, seven, a little over seven minutes. In for a marathon? For, for right. Yeah, for, for well, a marathon. What about like in, when you were competing in track or whatever? Yeah. You so ran the one mile? That got down, I think, uh, about a six and a half, yeah. somewhere around there. But uh, I'm not doing that now. Yeah. Now, it's, now I'm more long for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like me. I want to look at the things and yeah. kind of. Hey, talking about YouTube, one last thing I want to talk about or just at least explain. Uh, you made a really cool video about your grandfather. Yes. That was... Uh, pretty cool that people might want to check out yeah i you know i attribute that to uh really to you jocko it you know listen to this podcast one of my favorite things is when you have guys from you know world war ii korea the you know the vietnam and just the stories that they tell and everybody's got a story and uh when i when i hear that i remember my my grandfather actually both of them both served in, in world war ii and, but my, my one grandfather was, was just a very introverted and he was in the army. He was in the, the mechanized in, in tanks. And, uh, he went over as a replacement for, uh, for the, uh, it was the 81st, uh, tank battalion. And, uh, but he never talked about it. When, when I was growing up, you know, I would spend summers working on the farm with him, and uh, he never mentioned it. And at that time, you know, I didn't know what to ask for or, you know, you know tell me about the, the war. And, uh, but, he, but he never talked. But he, it wasn't like it's was just me. He'd never talked about it with his kids or, you know, his family. It was just a part of his life that was kind of in the past and, and uh, just never talked about it. So 
and he passed away uh, in the in the early 90s when a couple of about a year or so ago my aunt brought me his like his old photo albums from that that time and it also had all of his military paperwork in it which you know you think of our field jackets are yeah. pretty thick back then it was like a page or two i mean there there wasn't wasn't much at all like go to war cool your home yeah that's it exactly and you know so because of my my time i was able to look at these and and kind of understand all right so he was at this unit at this time and he was actually in the fourth cav back when they had horses damn so you know to think about that that time of when your main asset was a horse i you know this, this animal that has its own personality and you know you think of of what we drive today and uh but but that you know that's that's part of your main thing so uh so i was able to come up with a timeline of where he was what units he was in then i spent some time just reading books on it so finding books about that unit overall reading it, reading about that time, reading about the, the operations to kind of get a, a better idea of what he did or what he may have done, because I, I don't know for sure. I never He never told me. But I was able, especially on the Internet, I was able to find some after action, like their monthly reporting from that unit uh, when, he was, uh, when he was over in, uh, in Germany as they were pushing to the Rhine. And, uh, and of course, Oh, I've written plenty of after action reports. You can kind of read between the lines <laughs> sometimes, but it had great data. And I was able to kind of uh, take all of his pictures that he had in his albums, digitize them, and then go kind of walk through the store using all these external sources and say, okay, this is you know where he would have been during this time. This is what happened during that time. So he was probably on this uh, this. Uh, cavalry march or he was probably in the tanks when they got hit on this so i kind of found the the one day that he probably was in combat for the first time you know where they first took casualties and again i I don't know for sure but uh but i was able to kind of create a timeline so i created a video of all his pictures so when i'm doing the voiceover and i'm telling the stories they're showing pictures of kind of that period of time. And so you kind of get an idea. And I, and I totally just did it for my family because they didn't have really any stories from him. And, um, yeah, I set kind of a deadline to have it by Veterans Day. I, I missed it by a little bit. But I want to do it before the holidays so when they were with their kids, they could watch it with them and kind of understand who their grandfather was and where he came from. And uh, so, yeah. That's uh, that's what you we're, saw. We're, what's the YouTube channel that that's on? So it's on my personal channel, but uh, his name is Everett Weiss. I think the name of the uh, the the file or the the video is you know Corporal Everett uh, Weiss. So if you spell Weiss W E I I W E I S S W I E S E. Oh, okay. So it's yeah, completely it's German, wrong. but it's uh, <laughs> completely W I E S E. Yeah, Everett Weiss. Um, yeah, W I E S E. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, one of our mutual friends sent that to me and told me to check it out. It's very cool, um, awesome stuff. If there's one thing that I could say that I found that I don't like about this is or the, the nomad the, lifestyle, the nomad, yeah, is uh, the va- vagabond. Um, 
it's it's because you're traveling around so much you're moving you know we, we move every uh two weeks to a month you really lose that kind of connection to a community and uh for example like for jujitsu for the before we did this i was training albeit i was you know white belt no mm-hmm. stripes but uh and if i could i give a shout out to uh, coastal bjj there in virginia beach phenomenal gym they, they were awesome you know a guy white hair coming in at 50 they they uh they they took really really good care of me nestor and the guys down there just just awesome guys and um so i i was i was training with them and and it was it was that that community but by doing this you got to leave that and i and i talked to him before i left i was like you know what do you think you know can i just go to another gym and and start working, and he said yes. But what I found, especially with COVID, it's tough mm-hmm. to kind of show up for just a couple of weeks, and you know nobody knows where you've been. And you know, I, I think a lot of gyms, especially like this, because it's such close contact, that you know they kind of stay in their own. And uh, and it, it's it's tough to uh, to kind of be part of that community. And uh, I think we're going to change that as as we go through this lifestyle we're finding that uh the first year and a half we we've been jumping around so much that we kind of need to home base a little bit Mm -hmm. more so we have a property down in florida and uh so our plan is for the winters we'll we'll probably be there and spend about five six months there and then be kind of part of that community and then for the summer pick a place like uh, i think this year we're going to okay. go all the way up to maine oh so we're going to hit uh, those areas and then maybe the next year go out maybe back out to the west coast like we did this year just we're to, in maine to see people farmington maine go up to the origin factory ah, you know the okay. deal you do you got people to train jiu-jitsu with come to the camp we have camp in august okay it's freaking awesome actually i might be there yeah during that time. come on up man okay it's 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 awesome i mean it's so cool there's several hundred people there from all over the world to train jiu-jitsu, hang out. It's it's great. Yeah. Now again, I'm I'm white belt. There's no... all kinds of white belts there. Okay. It's no factor. All right. No factor at all. Come and get it. All right. That'd be freaking legit. I'll look for those dates. <laughs> right on. Any other closing thoughts, man? Yeah. Thanks to my wife that supports all of this uh, this this crazy thing that we do and uh she's just i mean she's my best friend and we've been married uh, coming up on 31 years and just no one else that i'd want to do that do this with so really appreciate her right on man well thanks for coming on man thanks for uh thanks for sharing your stories thanks for sharing your lessons thanks for your service to the country to the navy to the teams and uh thanks for being someone i'll always be able to call friend man Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so Chris, he's gone. He stepped out. Uh, it, it, you you may have heard people say there's no standard day in the SEAL teams. Yeah. That's absolutely true. You don't have, hey, this is just a normal day. But, but what I think this highlights is there's just no kind of standard career. There's so many different directions things can go that, you're just going to have a different experience and what's cool is you can have some control over that experience you you have you get you you have the capability of adjusting i mean you look at gif and i 
very, you know, came in at the same time. We're in the same buzz class. We kind of like the same, same, we're we're on the same path. And yet, you know, he's speaking Vietnamese. We, and we both became radio men, but he's speaking Vietnamese. Just all these different things happen. He ends up like doing the, the, the advanced special operations stuff. Just, it's just different things happen and you just get different experiences. So it's that to me is a benefit to joining the military is, and I can only really say this with 100% certainty about the SEAL teams because that's where I spent my time, but most of the military, everyone I talked to, it's the same thing. You have, it's like a choose your own adventure book. The chances that somebody else chooses the same adventure as you is very small. So awesome to talk to Chris and, and and hear his, Cause, cause he's a friend. This is the other thing that's crazy thing about the SEAL teams. Like your friends come and go, mm-hmm. and you may not see a guy for, like when I saw him downstairs, I don't think I've seen him for probably fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Fifteen years. Yeah. We we, and we he, he hit me up, like God is my number, whatever, and he's like, hey hey John, I'm in town. I'm like oh cool, you you want to come hang out? You want to be on the podcast? You like, oh yeah, that'd be awesome. I listen to it all the time. So just. But no, no, like, well, how have you been? No, because right. it's a shared, you have this shared common background. Yeah. And then with that shared common background, your friends, you're like, cool. Yeah. I have friends I don't talk to. If I saw them tomorrow, I'd be like, hey, well, you know, uh, no factor, like no factor. <laughs> That's the other, no one, uh, I, there's no, hey, you didn't call me. Yeah. No one expects you to call me. <laughs> don't expect me to call you. Yeah. I'm not calling you. You're not going to call me? Cool. But if you need something, call me. Yeah. Call me. You don't have to call me. You don't have to prep call me. You don't have to keep. You have to send me birthday cards, whatever. Um, You need me? Cool. I'll show up. Or you want to, you got, you, you're in town? Give me a shout. We'll go roll. We'll see what's up. You, know, you it does go to show too how like, it's almost like if you put it into perspective where you, you have people with such different backgrounds and then they kind of can converge on this mm-hmm. Navy SEAL journey. Mm-hmm. They get washed up and filtered out and then they get kind of spit out into their, mm-hmm. you know, common interests for sure and common goals, but in such different ways. Like if you talk to, you know how you say like Navy SEALs don't have a stereotype or they, you think they have a stereotype. You think they do, but they don't. But they don't, yeah. This is like a really good example because, yeah. you know, I'm talking to him. He's like a super nice kind of introverted person and then now talk to you. You're like, no way that they were like, Kumpads in the team, like it doesn't make sense. And had the exact so different, and had the exact same job. Yeah, hung out and did stuff together. Yeah, <laughs> I know, and then so, like I'm trying to imagine, you know, like every time everyone talks, like when they tell their story, mm-hmm. I always try to kind of put myself, like I wonder how they were, you know, like what they looked like. I see them in front of me now, yeah. but what did they look like? You the young what, version. You of know them? what Giff looked like? <laughs> he looked exactly <laughs> like that man. He looked exactly the yeah. same. Just darker hair, probably. He had darker hair. But he looked the same, you know. There's yeah. almost the same build. I mean, I, I'm I'm bigger than I was. Like when we went through buds, when we started buds, I was 174. You know, I'm yeah. 230 right now. Yeah, he bigger. probably weighs somewhere in the neighborhood. Well, I don't know what he weighed in buds, but he looks about the same. Yeah, you know. And yeah. I'm sure, does he have a couple more wrinkles? Whatever. Yeah. We all do, but looks about the same. Yeah. So you imagine him like just functioning. You yeah. know, I can't imagine him yelling at nobody. To me, he's just like this super friendly person, yeah. but I'm sure he was like getting after it the way everyone else was. It's weird. That contrast is real weird. Yeah. It's fun, interesting. It is. Uh, good stuff, man. Good stuff. Oh, it's always good to talk to your old friends and see where they're at, see what they're up to, and 
Maybe, maybe there's a chance they're playing stand-up bass in a blues band. <laughs> what, Brad, every, the, the actually, I'll, I'll say this in a second. What I did kind of, what did hit me at one point, you know when you're talking about um, when someone, one of your superiors was like, if you're really hardcore, you're oh, going to yeah. go, what, with no no ground pad or yeah, whatever. All you're going to bring is a poncho and a poncho yeah. liner. Yeah, so, and you just felt Worst advice ever. No, well, or was it? Or well, yeah. In a way, it was like a, it was it fulfilled itself, right? As a thing. The no ground pad is a problem. Yeah. By the way, after that, like I never go in the field without a ground pad. I never go in the field without a wool beanie. Mm. And I did have a wool beanie, but that saved me. Mm. And I never go in the field without my Gore-Tex jacket. Because mm. worst case scenario, you put on a Gore-Tex jacket, a beanie, mm-hmm. man, and a ground pad, you're gonna be able to like last a lot longer with a lot more comfort. You, if you don't have those things, you're screwed. So you learned your lesson. Lesson was learned. It was was it that experience that that made you f- ground pad hundred percent? Okay. So to me, what was funny? I mean, good, and that's good for sure. But what struck me the most, what stood out, is that you know who you're like. Um, you watch Back to the Future. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I rem- I know the movie, uh, but I can't perfect. say I know the plot. So. Because I'm not a freaking dork <laughs> like you. So Marty McFly, right? The main guy, Michael J. Fox. Yeah. He, his weakness was if you call him chicken. He'll do the dumbest stuff. All you got to do is call him chicken. And that's like a theme throughout mm-hmm. all the, you know, that in fact, like later on, that's like why he like ruins oh, his so career. Oh, so someone questions yeah. my being hardcore. You do, yeah, you're the exact same. You're Marty McFly. But instead of chicken, <laughs> it's uh, freaking hardcore. Yeah. Well, or not I, hardcore, sorry. Yeah, I would say especially <laughs> when I was... Well, no. you're still like I that. Have, you're still I, like that. True. true yeah. yeah. If in fact now you're smarter though, I think I, I'm assuming. Mm. But so that, like, if I were to maybe, be like, hey, Jocko, <laughs> it would be like, hey, Jocko, like, do this. If you're hardcore, like, you would do this, right? Mm-hmm. Something that you maybe didn't want to do, or you said no to, or something like that. If I said it that straightforward, you'd you'd know what I'm doing, and you'd figure it out, and be like, hey, I'm, I'm not gonna fall for that. But if I just hinted at it. If you use the indirect approach. Indirect approach, maybe took a couple of days to maybe, you know, like plant seeds and stuff like that. Mm. Oh, I think I could get you fully to do some stuff. I don't know what. There's nothing wrong with getting people to do stuff. I like it. I appreciate it. A little bit of peer pressure in a positive way. Let's go with it, you know? Have I ever told you about the cliff on um, on shipwreck speech? No. Actually, I think I'm, you know what? No, I, I'm going to, I'm going to retract what I was about to, I was about to say, I could get you to jump off that cliff, but yeah, you'd, you pro- could. you'd probably <laughs> jump like, off that cliff. Show anyway. it to me. Yeah, it's not, it's I'm jumping not off. that scary. How, how many feet is it? It's not, it's, put it this way, it's high, but not super high. So. Is it over 100 feet? No, 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 no. Okay. It was like, okay, so the last time I jumped was the last time I went and I hadn't jumped for like a long time, probably like eight years maybe. Mm-hmm. It's like when you're young, you, you jump, it's fun. It's a little bit of a swim, maybe 100 meter swim back then. Give me an estimate on the height. Uh, 30, 35 maybe. Bruh. Put it this way. I went to you jump. You're throw that at me. me? A challenge, <laughs> I know, I know. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but I'm saying if no, if you haven't jumped there, it's <laughs> it's like it can be intimidating. And people jump off there. Because they see other people. Because everyone on the beach can see you jump. Oh. The cliff kind of wraps around, and mm-hmm. it, the beach is literally like a like a audience, yeah. perfect like spot. Sure. So when you jump, everyone watches you, right? So when this Me and does Tulsi a, used to do that. <laughs> Tulsi used to go jump off that beach where yeah. she was a water woman. Oh, yeah. She used to put the cape on back in HI. Sure. This is on quiet, by the way. So 
when you go up there, it does two things. One, it makes you want to like jump when you see other people. It's like, oh, that's fun. That'll be an adventure, right? right? You go. Up. And but another thing that it does is when you go up there and you stand at the edge, everyone's watching, so you can't turn back and walk down because you can be like, oh, you're the guy who walked. You're down. going. Yeah, you're going. So we went. I went with my 15 year old nephew, mm-hmm. and he was like, I want to do it. I want to do it this time. So I'm like, cool. And he jumps, but before we jumped, there's these, there were these people up there. They didn't live there. So they're like, oh, are you guys going to jump? And we're like, yeah. They're like, okay. Kind of like it was a bad idea. Hmm. So I was like, she was like, oh, our friend is still in the hospital because he broke his back yesterday jumping off. Oof. So I was like, dang. So it's high enough to break your back, but it depends on who you are. It also depends on what you hit. I mean, this person that broke their back hit the bottom nope. is it not deep so no, they're not deep. breaking their back from just a regular jump if they're a normal person at 35 feet bro that's there's some other whatever. there's some other elements into this you know, story that he, we're hearing here's what he uh, they said she, he was 50 years old okay i'm 50 years old i'm not breaking my back jumping no off I, I believe 100 percent you're not breaking your back when you can but you're not the average 50 years old the year old person and if you land a certain way like oh yeah you can break your back i think mm-hmm. and another kind he broke his back and he was like done he he like you know had a fractured one of his vertebrae in this way he's in the hospital for more than a day though so well weird things can happen when it comes to injuries that's true you gotta take that into account i gotta don't want to be talking too much smack over here plus you gotta be careful but in your case i just call you not hardcore and you'll do anything whatever (laughs) yeah well everyone thanks for listening thanks for hanging out with uh good old gif gif and me if you want to help us out with supporting what we're doing check out jockofuel.com we got some we got some tasty goodness on there, which is a weird thing. You say first thing people think about when they think of supplements, they're not generally thinking like, oh, tasty. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they even don't think tasty. Yeah. The first thing I said was tasty. Yeah. Why? Because because milk. It's a front runner. Because right? milk is a front runner. It's a front runner in food to take into your body and and enjoy that process. It's true. <laughs> cool, man. They're gonna remember help the, you. Remember the uh, remember the freaking protein shakes. Back in the day. Yeah. They were so bad. I was on an ARG platoon on a ship. Mm. And we had the the latest and greatest. And everyone had it. And it was so, it tasted so bad. It was vanilla. Mm. I remember I used to have to hold my nose. Because I was on the train, right? We were, we're doing, we were doing yeah. this stuff. Whatever we're trying to get jacked. Eating I would hold eggs. my nose and do it like I'm doing a shot of tequila. <laughs> so that's how, that's not what we want. No. We want to have a good taste. Or remember the old school freaking Mega Mass 5 million or whatever, you know, the, yeah, the, the yeah, one yeah. in the big dog food yeah. bag or whatever. That tasted good, but I think it had like boatloads of like sugar yeah, it was and just like straight bad up, stuff. Just, like <laughs> straight up bad Technically food. had more protein or whatever. Yeah. Well, they were also like, hey, this is for gaining mass. Right. Yeah. So we're we literally it. just going to give you sugar, fat, protein, yeah. just whatever. We're more just going to throw it in there, make it taste good. Yeah. Hey, more power to you. If you're a, yeah. if you're a hard gainer, remember that? <laughs> Back in the day, you got the hard gator coming in hot. Yeah. And then what's the two, three body types, right? Yeah. Mesomorph, ectomorph. What's the other one? Endo. Endomorph. Yeah. Right. There you go. So they'd have those little graphs. You know, maybe you need Is that a real thing there. now? I have no idea. I think it is a thing, yeah. but I don't know what determines that thing. Oh, yeah. Because I don't know if it, what's, det- you know what? Let, let's face it. There's some truth to it because there's some dudes that I know that would just eat pizzas and whatever yeah. and they're lean. Yep. That's true. So they might yeah. be the hard gainer. Yeah. 
And then some people, doesn't matter if they lift or not, they're kind of jacked. Yep. You know, I've I know known people like that. I, yeah, one of my uh, friends. What's, and I know some people that work all, out like crazy yeah. and they don't look yeah. like it. And they can even be strong yeah. and f- even be fast, but they still look like kind of dumpy. Yeah, that is true. So I guess yep. the thing is a thing. Yeah. So we got to watch out for that one. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I literally know a, someone like immediately comes to mind for every single one of those. That's interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, you got to watch out for that, of course. So know your body type, yeah. right? No, um, no, also, yeah. speaking of taste good, the energy drinks, healthy energy drinks yeah. too, but Which is a rare thing. Very rare. Kind of a unique thing. Yep. Get some of those. And you can get this stuff at jockofuel.com. You can get it at Wawa. You can get the drinks at Wawa. You can get it. You can get all the stuff at Vitamin Shop as well. So check that out. Oh, also, if you need some jujitsu gear, which you probably do, go to originusa.com. And what's cool is we started with jujitsu gear, but now we're making just straight gear for your life. Jeans, yeah. t-shirts, boots. hoodies, boots, whatever you need, we got it. So the, check some of that out. The the jeans, and I don't know why these ones struck me so hard or whatever. It's the the that new the new jeans that they're what? coming out with. They're like green or something. The one that Pete the, said the next one's going to be camo. The work, their work pants, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I do the work. Actually, I'm not requires. sure which one I know you're talking about. I'm no, pretty I sure. I know you don't do the work that's required. It's <laughs> called work. For those kind of pants. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do want you're the pants. disqualified though. for I want work the pants across the board. <laughs> 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 yeah, if they got any padding in the knee, let's face it, that padding's not going to get any, any action. No use for my work. <laughs> that's for damn sure. But nonetheless, for people who do do work, these are both functional and aesthetic. Man, I'm looking at them, and I want them, mm-hmm. you know, just for the look alone. And then I know they're probably more functional than they look good, so that's yeah. saying a lot. OriginUSA.com, go and get yourself some gear. And by the way, support an American company that's rebuilding American manufacturing and helping American communities and workers. That's what we're about. That's what Because if we weren't about that, guess what we'd be doing? Hiring some slave labor overseas in China to make everything for us. Okay, make a little bit more profit. Make a little bit more profit. Hey, we, we, we can stuff a little bit more money in our pockets over here. Sure. To rip it out of the hearts of the American worker. We're not doing that. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're doing. So, originusa.com. Go check it out. There you go. It's true. Also, when you're when you're uh, in the mood to represent on this path, mm-hmm. hey, look, we're, we're, we're capable. Which kind of reminds me, you know how like, and some, some of the guests will have this where, They'll talk about like their background or whatever, and then you know they went through this, they went through that. They already yeah. had this certification or this, yeah. you know. It like makes you think, man. Those certificate and there's a lot of them available, by the way. What like, certifications? Yeah, like Gif mentioned, uh, he who's a paddy diver. Yeah, yeah. And Before he, just, he even joined the Navy, maybe. Yeah, and he wasn't even really. Um, I never dove on scuba gear until I was in the Navy. Yeah, see, and that's one that I always was like, man, that'd be a cool one to because I, I grew up Wait, diving. Did you dive? Yeah, I grew up diving. Scuba oh, yeah. diving? No, never. So snorkeling. Free diving, we call it. Yeah. Wait, wasn't, who was it? Um, Micah, right? Was talking yeah. about free diving? Yeah, Micah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and we didn't go into that. He was some kind of world-class. Uh, Bro, my younger brother, yeah. Yata Charles, yeah. he is heavy, not so much anymore. He has kids and all that stuff now, but he's heavy into free diving, spearfishing, all this mm-hmm. stuff. Really good, too. One of his friends. Did he I know think, who Michael was? I don't know. That's why I want to kind of ask Check him. Yata. Yeah, man. He And one of his friends actually, I think, still holds the record uh-huh. of the deepest free dive. If I'm not mistaken, I could Dang. be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure. He showed me the video. It's freaking crazy. Nonetheless, I know a little bit about free diving. 
And but and scuba diving has always been like kind of like, oh man, that'd be a cool one to have. You can just stay down there and breathe. You see what I'm saying? The kind of dive rig that you eventually end up using in the SEAL teams, which is called a rebreather, a rebreather, sure. and it has no bubbles. Yeah. And when you're down there, it just like quiet's like. Yeah, it's not like a normal a normal when you're scuba diving with a normal what's called an open circuit rig. It's like <laughs> it's all noisy. There's <laughs> bubbles everywhere. You don't like that, and I don't like it at all. And I've yeah. spent way more. I've probably spent a hundred times more in my life on Drager. What's Drager? Drager's the rebreather. Uh-oh. Then open circuit. Open circuit. You basically do it in buds. You get qualified. And then as soon as you're done with that, you go on closed circuit. And that's where you dive for the rest of your career. Yeah. Maybe every once in a blue moon you dive open circuit. I can't. I think I dove open circuit on a ship one time to like clear some some seaweed out of something or something like this. But but have you ever gone scuba diving in any capacity after you retired from the navy? No. Would you like? Is that your jam? Like, would you? I, if I could get a rebreather? Yeah. Yes. Like just to go or what? Or go if, if, if I was like, let's say we were went back to Hawaii and we were just gonna go diving. Hell yeah. And I could use a rebreather. I'd probably look into it, maybe do it. Are rebreathers like available, or is they that are? Just a... But I don't know what the rules are. You know, bro, they're not available. They're like plutonium. No, no, you. Uh, they are available. I've looked at. It. You can buy one. It's like five or six thousand dollars. Oh, damn. You know, how much is a regular scuba rig? Like a middle of the road. I I would guess fifteen hundred bucks for the whole thing if you went over to the dive shop and hooked it up. Yeah. Huh. But that seems like, to me anyway, that seems like a cool little just certification. You can just decide to go it's a good get, thing to know how you to know, do. just like even like the guns thing, like, you know, how to, you know, those kind of certifications just have more capability mm. overall. You can just choose. Plenty. Yeah. And there's people that chase those little qualifications, right? Yeah. And well, I dig it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. But I mean, of course, just like anything else, it's like, you know, if you don't want to do it for nothing, they got to be applicable, I would think anyway. Yeah. But it's better to have the capability and certification than Let's not. Let's build capability is what is what we're saying. You know which one I randomly got? Um, it's not random. It's for a reason. But it seems but it seems like you would never just think to go get it. But once you kind of think about it for a second, it's like super duper useful is CPR. Yeah. I'm CPR certified. <laughs> Dude, did you put that on your resume for this job? <laughs> I'm just saying, if you if you black out or something like this, I got you, brother. That's what I'm saying, dude. I didn't know. I'm dealing with a highly oh. qualified, <laughs> highly qualified individual. I told over you, here. I told you it's small, but it's one of those it's things you can just get, and it's better to have. <laughs> better to have than not have. Brought that up, bro. I'm just saying, it's what, one of those what did things. you like apply to college? Go get that degree in CPR. <laughs> Jack. <laughs> All right, so uh, there you go. Are we if done? Are we you're done? down, <laughs> if you go down, remember, text Echo Charles. He'll come and give you CPR. He's qualified. <laughs> it's like a 15-minute class, bro. Bro, I don't even know why I tell you these things. I don't, I don't know why know. I tell you anything. I don't know why you do either. That's ridiculous. <laughs> either way, uh, yeah. if you want to represent while you're on the path, CPR certified or not, <laughs> <laughs> Go to JockoStore.com. Oh, you can get your um, discipline equals freedom mm. shirts and hats. And hoodies. there's a lot of good stuff on there. Check it out. If you want something, get something to yeah. represent. Don't forget, we got some other podcasts too. We got the Jocko Unraveling with Daryl Cooper. We got the Grounded Podcast, Warrior Kid Podcast. We got Jocko Underground. That's a huge way to support. There's people getting banned. You got what just happened? Neil Young told Spotify, get Rogan off. Oh, yeah. Get him off. Straight up ultimatum. And guess what happened? What? Did you see the outcome? Uh 
Neil Young's off Spotify. <laughs> we should do, we should say we 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 want Joe Rogan off Spotify. Uh, yeah. Or we're you're gonna have to get this off the be like, Who are you? <laughs> uh, but listen, that's a scenario that happened. Yeah. Luckily, Spotify made the call to keep Joe Rogan because Neil Young, cool. I don't know if that happened to Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young as well. I don't know if he screwed over all of his old bandmates too. <laughs> you know, who knows what happened there. Yeah. Good old Neil Young. But you jacked it up, son. So we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if somebody's going to come on uh, on the Apple and, and we don't know if some big band, if Neil Young's going to go on Apple and say, hey, take down Jocko Podcast because I don't like what they're saying about CPR <laughs> calls. <laughs> So we don't know if that's gonna happen. So that's why we have Jocko Underground. So if you wanna if you wanna get on board there, you wanna help us out, it costs eight dollars and eighteen cents a month to come and we have a podcast that we do there. Little little bit of a little bit of a project to mm-hmm. pass more information. If you can't afford it, it's okay. Email assistance at jockounderground.com so you can be in the game. Check out our YouTube channel, check out flipsidecanvas.com with Dakota Meyer. Check it out. I wrote a bunch of books. Check them out. I would say especially check out the kids' books. Most people know I've written some books, but yeah. some people don't know I wrote kids' books. Mm. Kids' books, keep them kids on the path. And also we have Echelon Front, which is our leadership consultancy. If you want to have us help you with your leadership, go to extremeownership.com and a online training platform. So look, a few years ago, if someone said, hey, you know, I really want to learn about leadership, uh, do you... Can you help me? I'd say, yeah, just listen to my podcast, man. And they'd be like, oh, okay, cool, thanks. And they'd listen, there's good information. Mm-hmm. But now there's 300 plus podcasts, you can't, and they're about war, and they're about atrocities, and so the leadership lessons are strewn mm-hmm. throughout. So we, this is one thing that we've done to sort of, hey, let's get these things into a consolidated curriculum where you can literally learn from step A through step Z there you go. Go to extremeownership.com. Little story about the word strewn. Mm-hmm. So I got two, I got three daughters, the sure. two older ones. They're very, they're very, you know. Articulate. Are, well, they also get hostile, right? <laughs> you know. Sure, that too. Okay. And, and right. they shared room for a long time. And they still share a room when they're home. Uh, but one of them wrote, the older one wrote a message to the younger one that said, you know, something along the lines of, listen. I just got home, uh, I've been out all day working, and I just got home, and as soon as I walked into our room, I could barely get in there because you had your clothes and your stuff strewn about the floor, and I would really appreciate it if you come home and clean this up. And my middle daughter replied, strewn. (laughs) That's all she wrote back. (laughs) So I thought that was pretty funny. Strewn. So now it's a joke inside of our family. If there's something been left out, then it's been there's then it's strewn about, and then mm. the response is just straight up strewn. <laughs> strewn about. And if you want to help service members active and retire, go check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got an awesome charity organization. If you want to donate or you get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. And if you need more of us, for whatever reason, we're on social. Watch out for the al- algorithm. I'm not trying to draw you into the algorithm where that thing grabs a hold of your soul and drags you down reading into comments and feeling bad about yourself and scanning to another screen and another one. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do that. I'd rather you not do that. But if you feel like, oh, I got a question, I wanna 
see what's happening, cool. We're on the we're on the gram, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. Echoes at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. And once again, if you want to hang out with Chris Gifford and his wife Julie, go to Instagram taking leave underscore RV. There you go. That's Julie and Chris. Who knows what they got going on out there in the world in an airstream? What did it say? Thirty foot airstream. Yeah, that's a nice foot. ride right there. Yeah, nice ride. Solid. And speaking of Chris Gifford. Just want to say thanks once again to Chris on his travels. He was nice enough to stop by. He was a silent professional in the teams and a pro. And appreciate it. Appreciate your service. And thanks for coming by. And to all the other vets out there, both the vets and also the folks that are still active duty manning the watch worldwide. Thank you for your continued service. And to our police and law enforcement and firefighters, Paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all the first responders. Thanks for manning the watch here at home. And to everyone else, to everyone else, remember what Chris did with his life. He set a goal, and then he went out, and he achieved it. And then he did that again, and again, and again. And that is a good plan. So go out there, come up with a goal, and execute by getting after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out.